Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. A couple of things you won't find on this channel. One, adverts, and two, requests for your money. That's because this content's free, which is as it should be. But if you do like this video, then please subscribe, give it a thumbs up, leave a comment, and share it with somebody else who you think might like it also. Of course, if you're listening on the podcast version, you could always leave a review of my podcast to let other people know what you think of 10% True. Today I'm talking to Puck, a hugely experienced US Navy F-14 pilot, which means that I'm automatically at a massive disadvantage because, as I said to him, I really don't know much about the US Navy, US Navy operations, carrier operations, and um, in particular, F-14 operations. So I told him that, and with that confession out of the way, I asked him to introduce himself. Enjoy. Name's Jim Howe, call signs Puck, and uh, long story on that, but uh, I don't know how familiar you are with, with ice hockey, but there was a famous hockey player that was named Gordy Howe, and initially I was assigned my, my call sign and my orders when I graduated from flight school and got F-14s. I was like, congratulations, F-14s, your call sign is Gordy. So I show up in Oceana to learn how to fly the F-14. They quickly realized that uh, you're not worthy of being named after a great hockey player, you're the hockey puck. So it switched to puck shortly after I got to Oceana, and that's what I ended up being known as for 20 years in the F-14. Um, but uh, I flew the F-14 from 1993 to 2007 when we finally got rid of them. Actually, 2006 when we finally got rid of them. And uh, then I flew the uh, F-18E Super Hornet after that. But um, flew all types, models, and series of it. Flew the F-14A, the B, and the D. Um, I was a, an instructor in the uh, in all types, models, and series. Went to Top Gun in the A, and um, it was my favorite plane. So it was. Uh, it will always have a soft spot in my heart, as well as the community that I flew it with. Can you give us a quick rundown then between the differences or, or around the differences between those different variants? Then um, absolutely. Um, you know, the F-14A started in the early 70s. First flight was in 71. And uh, Grumman kind of found themselves in a tough spot when they were developing it because they realized that the initial engine that it was designed with, uh, the Pratt & Whitney, the TF-30, wasn't quite uh, as robust with, with regards to stall margins as they'd hoped. Um, for those familiar, the TF-30 was initially designed for the FB-111. And in the FB-111, it did very well. Um, it was a lower altitude fighter bomber, another swept wing. Our U.S. Air Force flew it. Um, but 
it did very well from what I understand. I, I never flew the FB 111, but my friends in the Air Force that flew it said the TF 30 for them worked perfectly. Uh, for us, the TF 30 did not work out so well. Um, and that's what the F 14A had in it. Uh, we quickly realized after a few years that the TF 30 was not going to be a sustainable model for um, continued operation. Uh, to tell you a quick story, I stalled my first TF 30 straight and level at 15,000 feet doing 300 knots. Um, absolutely no reason an engine should stall in a non-maneuvering regime, basically straight and level. I did maneuver the throttles. Um, and as I quickly learned, um, you know, again, I was a student in the plane. Uh, my instructor in the back seat told me, well, that was pilot induced. And I'm like, what do you mean? I, I didn't do anything. He's like, trust me, it's pilot induced. So I get back and I talk to maintenance. And they're like, did you induce it? And I said, yes. And they go, good. Because that was basically meant that the plane could fly the next flight. And that, you know, as it turns out, that's what you just got used to. Um, I will say it cleared very quickly. You'd follow the emergency procedure, which was unload the aircraft. And normally you never got any further than that on the emergency procedures. And so the stall would clear. But I quickly realized that this engine had issues. Um, and the Navy realized that as well. So that's when they started creating... Uh, what was called the Super Tomcat, the F-14B. I'm sorry, the, uh, well, the initial Super, which was the B. And the only difference between the A and the B at the time, actually there were two differences. The raw gear was different um, and the uh, engines were different. So they went for the, the Pratt & Whitney TF-30, the GE-110. The GE-110, in my humble opinion, is the greatest engine that was ever put in a fighter. Um, that thing would... It, it, you couldn't stall it. It produced significantly more thrust. Uh, as a matter of fact, we were prohibited from doing take afterburner takeoffs with that because it was so fast we'd overspeed the gear. Uh, gear speed on a Tomcat was 280 knots. So we couldn't get the gear retracted uh, if we were an afterburner before we were going 280 knots. That's how quickly we would uh, get to, we, I mean, we would be 350 knots, no problem in th three or four seconds if you just did an afterburner takeoff. So we were restricted to mill, mill rated thrust. So um, no afterburner. And then the uh, difference, the Super Tomcat, the F-14D is a completely different aircraft. Um, it had a glass cockpit. It had a different radar. Uh, both the A and the B had the Yog-9. Uh, the F-14D had the APG-71. It had an Erst. Um, infrared search and track set that was unbelievable. You couldn't fool it. Uh, I'll tell you a story about that in a, in a bit. Um, it had great raw gear. It had Link 16. It had, uh, again, they had the GE engines in it, so it had great motors. I had the best HUD that I flew with in my Navy career to include the F-18E Super Hornet. Um, and it, it was really a shame. I, I can tell you that in 2006, when we got back from deployment, that last deployment, uh, CAG-8, the air wing I was in, we had four strike fighter squadrons. We had VF-2, I'm sorry, VF-213, VF VF-31, my squadron. We had VFA-87 and uh, VFA-15. Um, good good, super, or good Hornet squadrons. They're flying the regular Hornet. Uh, great guys, great squadrons, but the F-14Ds on that cruise were far and away the most lethal aircraft on the flight deck. And, you know, it's a shame when, when, I, when those planes went away, we came back from that deployment in March of 2006, 
the F-213 started their transition to the Super Hornet. And then that rem- that left us, VF-31 is the last F-14 squadron. And so um, we left the deployment with uh, 11 aircraft. And from that point until September, when we flew the last one away, uh, we were basically either sending the Davis Monthan to the, uh, the graveyard, the boneyard, um, or the museums. Uh, six of my aircraft are in front of museums at this point right now. So including the last one, which was flown up to Bethpage where they were built. But let me take you back um, then to just talking about the, the D model. Um, and then we can, because some of the technical detail can can perhaps be a little bit dry and we can then sort of, we cover that and then we can get on with the, okay, you know, sort of the other part of the, the conversation, which you just referenced around the retirement and, and the, the, sort of the process of doing that but so so apg 71 was the radar and the d model uh, and i think um, and that's based on the apg 70 which was in the strike eagle correct Uh, did you retain then the air to ground modes for the tomcat because i I guess one thing that was perhaps sort of um unexpected uh, certainly amongst some quarters was that you would end up with the d model effectively becoming a bomb truck so out in afghanistan and, and iraq it had uh, the laser guide capability. You mentioned Lick 16. There was the rover um, uh, uplink capability too. Um, so, so what about uh, that air-to-ground uh, capability in the radar? And, and did you use it? And, and how did it work? It had. Uh, it did not have the the, uh, the capabilities of the Strike Eagle. Um, it we did not uh, pay for the, the, the all the capabilities. It had some limited air-to-ground capability, but uh, between the fact that we didn't have a, a robust suite of air-to-ground uh, mapping in, in the uh, the APG-71, and we didn't train to it that often, um, what we did have was we had the lantern pod. So uh, our lantern was significantly more capable than the, the Nighthawk that the Hornets were carrying. Um, you know, this is back before they got lightning or they got any of the uh, upgraded pods. Um, even the... Uh, trying to think what their follow on to the Nighthawk was because we actually had it. Um, but they, uh, the Lantern, the Lantern, when I was on that last deployment, we dropped a lot of bombs. Um, that was the weapon of choice. It had a 40,000 foot laser. Uh, so we could drop from real high altitudes if, we, if required. Um, it had much better resolution. We obviously had a dedicated operator, which was a big plus trying to fly a single seat Hornet in you know, in tough conditions or whatever, and and trying to fleer fish on a Nighthawk on, and they were using their uh, multifunction display. So they didn't have a dedicated display like we did. You know, in the back of our F-14, we had a, 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 a brand new PTID back there, big uh, improved tactical information display. And I had a reel. You know, so my radar intercept officers back there, manipulating it, using it. And, I, and so I can concentrate on flying, doing my things. I have, a, I have a repeat of his display so I can see what he's looking at and ensure that he's going where he needs to be. But uh, quite honestly, we, we didn't have a whole lot of requirement for uh, using an air-to-ground radar um, only because we didn't, we didn't train to it. And with laser-guided weapons, um, you're really gonna need line of sight anyway. Um, maybe with the GPS guided weapons that we dropped, I mean, you, you don't need to see your target anyway. You just need to get into the basket and, you know, it's like, okay, drop the, you know, it says we're here, drop the bomb and the bomb would find the target with regardless of the weather. So, um, a lot of the things like, you know, the A6 obviously had a great, 
air to ground map. Um, and it would use that, but we didn't train to that mission. I suppose the thing that's synonymous with the, the Tomcat, when you, if you ask anybody, it's going to be the pairing with the, the between the Org 9 and the AIM-54, the Phoenix missile. Yeah. Did the APG-71 then bring you enhanced capability in terms of detection ranges, being able to, um, I don't know, engage more targets simultaneously? Because, because I, I suppose people just think of the Org 9 as just being the sort of the, the god of radar sets. Yeah, you know, the AUG-9 was awesome. Um, it was dated, but it was really, a, it was a super powerful radar. Uh, but it required somebody who knew how to work it in the backseat. Uh, I can tell you that it, it with with the pilots, we always had landing on the ship as a, as a, a measuring stick, and we had fighting. Um, with So you could quickly find out who was holding their weight as far as flying the plane. It was a little harder in the backseat because I can tell you the, the, the AUG-9 was a very difficult radar. It was a very powerful radar. Um, and there were a lot of modes. And invariably, at least one of those modes wasn't going to work. Um, and so a very a good Rio would know how to work his way around that and still make that a very you know capable aircraft. Uh, unfortunately, good Rios were harder to find than good pilots. Um, there were, there were a lot of people that, that sat in my back seat. There were only handfuls that I would, would tell you were really good. Um, you know, why is, why is that? Uh, I think a lot of it is because, uh, if the system's working, it's hard to find out if a guy's not any good. Hmm. And so if this, if, you know, if everything's working, it's like flying a plane. If it's a nice day out and everything's great, it's hard to tell if the guy really has what it takes, but with, with Rios, and, and invariably, you're going to find a situation whether you can't fight, you can't drop bombs, whether you can't land on the aircraft carrier. There's something that you're going to figure out pretty quickly on the front seat as far as whether or not a guy is worth his weight. It's a little more in, you know, ambiguous in the back seat, if that makes sense, um, because there were a lot of reasons that the back seat wouldn't work. Good Rios found a way to make it work anyway. And it would, you know, if you look at a Rio over time, you'd be able to tell pretty quickly whether or not this is one of those guys that can make any system work, or this is one of those guys that's going to have a reason that he couldn't find, a, you know, the, you know, the planes out there on his radar. And um, it, it, it's very obvious to the good drivers who, who know how to work the backseat. And we always flew with those same guys. It's like, I'm, I'm taking Abdul or I'm, you know, I'm taking Donnie. It's like you, you picked your guys cause you knew who was going to get you the locks when you needed it. Um, and it was a little easier in the, uh, the D cause the APG 71 had medium PRF medium, uh, pulse kind of intermediate. The, uh, the AUG nine only had, uh, high and low PRFs. So you're either in a pulse Doppler mode or you're in a pulse mode. And so any sort of, you know, if you were in a pulse Doppler mode, obviously requires closure. And if you didn't have closure, i.e. the target went to the notch, the beam or whatever, you'd lose your, your, your target track pretty quickly. And the D was able to track through those phases. And that was the one capability you asked about whether or not the, uh, aim 54, gained any capabilities uh with the the apg 71 and that that's what i would tell you is that it would be able to, to target and still track maneuvering targets um 
it, it would become a question of whether or not the missile could hack it at that point. Um, but at least it would still have a chance because the missile would still know where the target was. Uh, but if you, if you shot a really long range Phoenix shot over 60 miles, let's say it, it is not, it doesn't require a lot to defeat that shot, which is why we didn't take them. Uh, Top Gun recommended, as a matter of fact, when I, by the time I was going through Top Gun in 97, uh, we had restricted the use of the Phoenix to basically 30 miles. We would shoot, we, you know, we wouldn't shoot outside of 30 we'd shoot down to 20 basically. And that was it. And then we'd hold any shots. And uh, then, then we'd wait for the targets to maneuver. So, and I, I apologize, but actually outside of 30 miles is you wouldn't, you, you would basically 40 to 30, you'd take your long range shots. And then in, if you didn't get your shot off by then you would just hold your shots. Cause you're, you know, the target's going to maneuver. They would employ former Soviet Union tactics, you know, do their double pins, whatever the case may be. Uh, and then we'd wait for them to come back. And basically 20 miles on end is when we started employing the Phoenix again. So 20 to 30 miles was sort of a dead zone for the Phoenix missile, uh, at least the way we started to employ it. When we were employing it early, we'd shoot six of them at 50 miles. The target would move 25 degrees and all those shots are defeated. I mean, that's how little it really took at long range. That brings into mind then the question of AMRAM. I've seen a shot, I think, of a, a D model shooting an AMRAM. But you did? Did you get that operationally? Did you get AMRAM operationally? No, no, we never, we never got the software required for the AMRAM, um, which is a shame because it's a fantastic missile. Uh, big fan of it. Um, the you know the short range Phoenix shot was a great shot, twenty miles on in. But I would love to have had a, a, a medium range shot, the twenty to thirty mile range shot, which the MRM has that we did. And so, um, you know, it, it's great to get rank missiles. The idea was that if we could shoot them, you know, well before thirty, then maybe we could shoot them before they realize they're being targeted. Hmm. Um, inside of thirty, we recognize they know they're being targeted. They're going to start their maneuvers pretty shortly they're going to defeat basically any phoenix shot at that situ in that situation and so we're just going to hold our shots for the short range timeline which started at 20 miles um the amram there's a lot of iterations of different timelines in there because that had that had a lot more capability as far as maneuvering and, and maneuvering targets it had different radar modes than ours so ours you know it ours even the the radar in the aim 54 the missile itself was pretty capable, um, but it was a pulse radar. So, you know, it, it could buy it, bite off on some, it, it, it could be decoyed pretty quickly if you, if you didn't have a very good look at what you were trying to actually shoot. Hmm. So, so, and you're talking of course about being an act, active radar. So yeah, um, it's at, uh, uh, can you talk about the range at which it went active? Is that a secret? Usually uh, it, it was active. Typically we would say, uh, just inside a half a range shot. Uh, so if you shot it at 30, it's typically active. Uh, it was half plus five. I'm trying to remember my rules of thumb. I think it was half shot, half, half shot range plus five miles is what we used. So if you shot it at 30, it was active at 20. Um, if you shot it at 20, it was typically active by 15. It, you could shoot it active off the rail at 13. If you went target size switched to large, it was like 13.1 miles. You could literally shoot and it would be active off the rail. Uh, 
Um, now, whether it locked on at that point, you don't know what it's locking on to, though, if you're not giving it any guidance. So as we used to say, don't use that mode if you've got a friend in front of you, because it's just going to bite off on something. Um, and it had capability. I mean, it, you know, it burned for 30 seconds nearly. So, you know, it's. It, if it wasn't a long range shot where it would do the main beam avoidance maneuver would go up straight up. I don't know if you're familiar with the, how the Phoenix missile. Okay. So the, you know, if it wasn't going to do an M band maneuver and it was just going to go straight, I mean, 29 seconds burn time, it was going to go, it was going to burn all the way to the target. Was so, it maneuverable? Not very. I mean, it, it, it was a, it's a big missile. I mean, it, and you know, I remember walking to my first missile, you know, it's sitting there on my wing. We used to carry, we could carry them on the shoulders. Sometimes when I initially they were only in the bellies, but by the time I got there, we were trying to drop more bombs. So we'd clean the bellies off and leave the bombs on there. So we'd carry our two sidewinders on the side on one A and one B or eight A, one A, eight A, which are the outboard stations. And then on the shoulders, we'd carry one Sparrow and one Phoenix. Um, So we had a mixed loadout, one, two and one loadout, we'd call it. And um, so we had some sort of capability uh, whether it was active IR or uh, semi-active, um, but we would carry shoulder-mounted Phoenix. And looking at a Phoenix mounted on the shoulder of an F-14 was weird because it's, you know, it's it's over six feet, it's a thousand pounds, it's a big missile. So you're like, eh. um, but it's it, again, it's a very, it was a capable short-range missile because it it would burn to to, to impact. And they were expensive too. I, I the figure in my head is a million dollars, and that I think that was the figure I I read when I was a child, which would have that been was the figure. Early that's, 80s, so. Yeah, Steve, that's what we use. I, I will tell you by the end there, since the F fourteen was the only one they could shoot them, and the only one people flying F you know F fourteens at that point were the Iranians. Uh, we were in a get rid of all the Phoenix missile mode. So by the end of the time, you know, all the F fourteen squadrons as we're transitioning out of the F fourteen business. They're basically, okay, let's empty the magazines. I mean, we have hundreds of Phoenix missiles that we need to start shooting. So every squadron would go out there and there'd be four, it'd be a division. So there's four jets out there in a wall, all loaded with multiple Phoenix. And next thing you know, it's all right. And Fox and we're all ripple firing Phoenix. And we had one video that was like $1 million, $2 million, $3 million. And it just, you know, as all these Phoenix are ripple firing off the F-14s. And, uh, but you're right, it was an expensive missile. I don't know what an AM, I have to imagine AMRAMs are more expensive than that now though, with all the, you know, electronics that are in those things. It's a pretty capable missile. So I'm sure that with inflation, it's just as expensive. There, of course, is is um, you know. So, so when you guys go off and do those sort of test shoots, they they sometimes put telemetry pods in instead of warheads and things like that, don't they? So they yes. they can figure out, you know, did the missile perform as we expected? Um, you know, could we expand the envelope? Does the envelope contract and so on and so forth? So when you were going off shooting all these um, these spar- um, these phoenixes around, did you discover anything about some of the predictions, some of the models that you had? Um, that would have been alarming to have found out in a, in a no kidding war. Uh, I found out they were, our, our charts were generally pessimistic, which was good. And, and I can tell you, I was fortunate enough as a, uh, a younger guy, I was a young Lieutenant. Um, so I'm trying to think of my, it'd be an air force captain, but I'm trying to think in the, uh, Royal air force. I got a bunch of buddies in the Royal air force. 
flight squadron. I'm, flight lieutenant. Yes, yeah, so a flight lieutenant. So I'm, I'm, and I've been given a, it's an AMRAM, or I'm sorry, it's a Phoenix to a Sparrow shot. Um, I'm, I'm supposed to shoot two missiles at the same target. And so obviously our big concern was, and before you do these, you get into the books and study all the, you know, in case the, 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 the shoot goes badly. And it frequently would because those drones, the drones that we shoot at, the BQMs are, are small little drones. I mean, they're not very big. Um, they typically have a radar augmenter on it, so it looks bigger than it is, but it's not a very big piece of metal itself, which means if there's any winds up there, which there are, as, you, as you're aware, it's getting blown all sorts of ways. Like it, it can get blown off the missile range in a heartbeat. And it was a winter shot, so there were heavy winds. The jet stream was probably 150 miles and 150 knots up at, at altitude where we were. So we're looking at it, and I'm watching this target. And so you know, it was supposed to be coming straight at us, but because of the winds, it's basically blowing sideways. So it looks like it's, you know, it's, it's vectors about 45 degrees off. And I've been told, Hey, you need to get rid of these missiles. So I also know how big the missile range is. And I know I'm like, we have to hurry. We need to cut this thing off. I mean, it's almost like really trying to, it was great training because we're trying to track down, uh, you know, an, an, a hostile target. So we get, we get the, the, uh, the long range uh, Phoenix shot off at about 32 miles and it's tracking and it ends up hitting the target. Um, but I'm waiting for my sparrow shot and I can't get the dot centered. Um, so I can't, I, I mean, literally I'm going 1.2, 1.3 Mach trying to track this drone down and it's blown off the range so badly that I can barely get the, the dot centered. I get it barely centered. So I'm basically taking a crank shot already and I mean, it was on the edge of a legal shot, but it was in the range. I mean, that's, you know, safety wise, it was safe, but as far as a, a valid shot, if you're going back to validate your tapes, probably on the, the fringe of being, a, you know, an invalid shot. So it's kind of like, all right, here it goes. So we pulled it Fox and we watched it. And I'm like, it looks like it's tracking and it tracked. We watched the TM data later and um, it, it was an invalid shot according to our books, because I, I didn't have, like, I was like two degrees outside of where it needed to be in order to be a valid shot. Um, but the missile hacked it. So it was nice to know that our training uh, was made us fight the tougher rules and the missiles could actually handle. Mm. So that, I mean, you were going to have capability outside of that. If you, if you absolutely needed it, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, I wouldn't have been shocked at that, Missile didn't track, but it did, and uh, we were both pretty happy about that. Did you? Uh, did you have? Um, I don't think you did, but I'll ask a question. Aim nine X was that? Did that come to the Tomcat? Yeah, it did come to the Tomcat. Okay. Oh, the Aim nine X. Yeah, it did. Uh, we had it, but it didn't have all the capabilities that we'd had on the Super Hornet. Um, you know, when I was flying the Super Hornet, we had the helmet mounted sights, and that's where the capability Aim nine X really, you know. It, and that actually, a lot of that's still classified. So, mm -hmm. sure. you know, all the other stuff. But the the, the helmet with the A9X was the real uh, pairing. Um, it was obviously an upgrade over the A9-8, uh, the Mike-8, which was a good missile. But up until the the A9X, I always felt that the U.S. was playing catch up with you know some of the other missiles around the world out there. Um, you know, I was always a fan of the Archer. I always liked the uh, the Python out of Israel. Um, 
Yeah, they were, they were always, the French were even building some good missiles. We always, I'm, I'm like, how, how, do, how do we always end up having, you know, the third or fourth best IR missile in the world? And uh, I think with AIM-9X, we finally caught up. That's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, just philosophically, because you have this history, you know, going back to the 60s, I think it was at the Forrester Report, um, talking about the demise of um, sort of you know, gun-equipped fighters because missiles were going to be the way to reach out and kill the enemy at long range and right. and then and then sort of debunking that and the experiences in Vietnam. And I think actually, I think I'm correct in saying the Navy has still got classified the performance of the AIM-9B from Vietnam. And I'm told that's because they're embarrassed about it rather than... Oh, it, as, I, I could tell you, I knew guys that shot it and it went straight down, it went off. I mean, it tracked the sun off the rail. Like you're looking at a target, the sun's over here. It's like, okay, that should track that. And it goes right into the moon. You know, we, there it goes. Like, we, yeah, it was horrible. That missile was useless. So, so does the does the answer to that question, and I get that it was more rhetorical than, than anything, but just, you know, sort of picking it up as a, as a conversation topic, does the answer to that question lie with the doctrinal um, sort of attitudes or beliefs that actually the technology technological prowess of being able to get, reach out and kill somebody beyond visual range is where it's really at that's the emphasis and then if you get into a within visual range engagement you've kind of screwed up somehow or you you should be just be blowing through because that's an argument that's also made around f-35 people talk about you know people are, are critical of it all the time in many different areas and for de many different reasons but one of the things that 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 is a response from advocates is well it doesn't need to be a great dogfighter because he's going to kill you before you never you ever know he's even there so but this is a very long-winded question but do you yeah. think that there is there is that is there a clue to that to the answer in in those sort of thoughts and those those things yeah i i can tell you that um and we even had it going back to amram and f-15c's i mean i, I routinely would be in exercises with with straight eagles and uh you know when the amrams started to get second third generations iterations of it, it i mean it became a, an amazing missile and you know you, you find out you know timeout kill shield one one you're dead and you're like you know raw you didn't go off shit didn't go off it's like all of a sudden you're dead um and the f-35 has just taken that to another level um yeah, I can tell you, I, you know, I'm friends with F-35 guys. And the cool thing about being at Oceana is Langley's 20 miles north of us. So we always have an opportunity to, to, you know, show them what we have. They have an opportunity to show us what they have. We can learn from each other. And it's something that we leverage pretty routinely. Uh, but yeah, it, it if the F-35 is getting into a left-to-left dogfight, you know, and you're both pitching down, it, they've, they've missed their, it's, it's, much too expensive to to risk, especially when you talk about what you can do with old generation fighters now with like what we're doing with our own F5s. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're, we're putting these, I think they're calling the lightning upgrade. I'm not even sure what the upgrade's called anymore, but I mean, it, between the missiles that you can throw on them, you can throw a helmet mounted sight on just about anything now and you can throw, I mean, so there's a ton of capability and old disposable aircraft you know, I say disposable lightly, but effectively it's, you know, one-tenth, if not less than what a, a F-35 would cost. So you tell me, what do you want? Do you want 20 or 30 
like I remember this when they the uh, Australians were re rewiggering the uh, the A4 the Super Fox, which was a tough fight. If you didn't know how to fight a Super Fox an A4F, you you were going to get in a, a roller with that thing and you were going to get shot. I promise you. And a, a good Super Fox pilot knew how to to, to do that. Um, and they had IR suppressors on the back. They had all sorts of things, and um, and it didn't cost a lot of money. I mean, what's an F5 cost now? $5 million. I think you can get one on eBay. Um, so th th it's a great question, but I think the answer is what you alluded to. It's that, yeah, an F35 should never see emerge. It, it, its dream is it it's killed everyone out there. And by the way, you didn't even know you were targeted the whole time it happened. So, you know, if they get within 20 miles of, of emerge, they've probably either underestimated who they're going against run out of missiles, which I think honestly is the biggest concern. It's, you know, when we war game against China and everyone else, it's, you know, how, how they, cause they will use human wave tactics and aircraft. Mm -hmm. We'll see MiG 21s. We'll see planes that haven't flown in years coming out. Obviously their versions, the J sevens or whatever they call. Um, so they'll launch out and, you know, they'll just absorb all our AMRAM and our other missiles. So uh, it does become a question of, you know, where do you employ these aircraft? And that's why I think there's always going to be room for a gun. I think there's always going to be room for less expensive fighters to fill, a, I'll call it a tiered defense situation. You know, I, I'm a big fan of the F-35. I'm a big fan of the F-22. I'm a big fan of these, you know, fifth gen American fighters. But I also think there's room for older fighters. And I'm calling that the Super Hornet. I think is a perfect example. Um, it's upgradable. It's not super expensive. It's got a lot of capability. And with the weapon systems that you can slap on these planes now, I think it's uh, it's going to fill a gap when we're starting to talk about, hey, we've got to shoot down 65 J7s. All right. Well, you know, I only have this many, I have X amount of AMRAM on the carrier. I have this many at the airfield. I have, all right, but I, you know what? I have a lot of 20 mic, Mike. That's cheap. <laughs> and I can gun anybody if I know how to, if you know how to do it right. That's, that's another interesting point, isn't it? Around the log logistics and the, the supply of, of stuff. I, I was told by um, an Air Force guy who was you know, sort of in the know, let's say, that the Russians ran out of chaff and flare in the first day of their invasion of Ukraine. Oh, yeah. Ukraine, yeah, they did. Yeah, just just twenty four hours in, they were panicking. Yeah. They didn't. So, oh, I, yeah, it was actually. I mean, you can probably see it if you go on on Twitter. I mean, I, I think you can see some accounts of planes flying by, and you're like it, getting shot at and getting hit because they have absolutely no expendables. Yeah. Yeah. So it's yes, you're right. It is a, you know, it can be a logistic situation that that get somebody I, I can i don't want to speak for current readiness but that probably won't be an issue for us so i, I call it the forest report is the old report that i was thinking of um yeah sure that's that's the name of it, not the forester but um so, so i always wonder whether or not it's it's a puerile sort of infantile type conversation to talk about which 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 aircraft is better um but i have to ask you about because you've kind of gone there a little bit by talking about the super fox and talking about flying against eagles and and so on and and i think most people know that um the the quality and the training and whether or not the person flying is having a good day or a bad day and who fucks up first or whatever it is right. those things yeah. are, all, are all factors but um 
you you talked about the G one ten being this great motor. You talked about a fantastic sensor suite then for the D model Tomcat. Physics of physics. You've got an aeroplane that's so big, weighs so much, that has so much thrust. You know, has aerodynamic qualities that are you know whatever they are. Was it a good VFM machine? Would you, um, you know, would you try not to get into a merge with some, with a Hornet or a, an F sixteen or a, an Eagle or you know, would you, if you went up against a Seuss 27 or a MiG-29 and an F-14, are you going to be in a, at a disadvantage and you've got to work to neutralize and then reverse that? What's the story? See, that's a great question. Um, and I can tell you that I think every driver of every different plane has their own view. And, you know, I, I have flown an F-16. Um, it's a great aircraft. It's human uh, dynamics. The human engineering that went into that, I think, is probably the best of any fighter I've ever flown because it, the way the seat lays back, the side stick, everything else, it, it was designed by a pilot for a pilot. Um, that said, it has an AOA limiter, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And um, it, well, most Tomcat drivers would have a real hard time with a, with a, uh, a, Fal- a, a Viper. Um, Really good Tomcat drivers would be able to basically you, you turn aggressive, you keep it a tight two circle nose low fight, and you eventually reverse it to a one circle nose high fight, and you get you have to get the, the F sixteen on its limiter. Now sometimes that's easier said than done, depending on who you're fighting. But uh, I was always pretty fortunate against the, the F sixteen. Um, you know, of course, I've run into a thousand Viper guys that are like, oh, I have more HUD footage of an F-14 than I have of everything. And it's like, gotcha. Um, but what I can tell you is that flying the F-14 was a challenge. Um, and the A was certainly a challenge. And I'm glad I learned, you know, my first 1,500 hours in F-14s were in the A. Um, but I learned from some great drivers. And that's one thing I think the F-14 had that the F-18 never really had is that we had a lineage of guys that came from the uh, F-4s. We had guys that were uh, just strictly F-8 guys. So, we, I mean, we had old fighter pilots and they knew that in some cases you may not be flying the best box, but again, it's the man in the box. It's not the box. And so you got to learn to work with your limitations. And so every F-14A guy that I can tell you is, if he's worth his salt, learned how to cheat. And how did you cheat? Well, the stall margin was not good. So we turn our environmental control system air off. Um, we would pull the, the uh, mid compression bypass circuit breakers. Uh, HE, I can you still even remember which circuit breakers they are. Um, LE1, LE2 up in the front seat, I'd pull those. Those are the alpha computer circuit breakers. So my aux flaps. The inboard flaps, the main flaps wouldn't come down when the aux flaps programmed, so I'd get clean air over the tail. So basically, a savvy F-14A pilot would come to the merge with about nine circuit breakers pulled, his environmental control system air off, and he'd have about six master caution warning lights going off because of all these things. You know, so you're overspeeding shit. I mean, basically, all the lights are off. And the first time you do it, it's, it's like, ah, but, you know, old guys would teach you, okay, this is what you're going to see. I learned from a guy named Alton Ross, Roscoe, who was a VF-43 adversary pilot, and he taught me well. I'd, I hadn't lost a fight till I fought him, and he savaged me. I hadn't been gunned like that. I mean, I thought I was just like, I'm unbeatable. 
I just hadn't been fighting people that were very good, apparently, because I went up against him and I learned what the next level was. And there was a whole level above where I was at. And he taught me for the next year and a half, I was his wingman. And after we finished our missions, we'd, he'd go out and just gun me. And eventually I got better um, and I learned. And that's some of the things I learned. So an F-14A guy learned that I need, these are the things I need to do. Um, another thing that we had was our wing sweep. So normally it was done off a of central air data computer, CDC. Well, any real Tomcat F-14A guy would tell you, I had that, that switch with that, ha that handle was up all the time, manual. It's there. I mean, my wings are either 20 degrees and I'm going to fight or I'm running away and they're swept all the way back. So it's, it's an on or off switch. It wasn't a programmed, you know, wings at 55 is doing nothing for you other than you're bleeding. So you quickly learned, okay, I, you know, this is where I, I need to be able to manipulate. I need to fight the plane and maneuver my wings. Now that's a lot of things on somebody's plate. So it took time to learn how to do these things. But once you did, I promise you the F-14A, even the old crappy A could fight with anybody because most guys, you know, Viper guys, F-15C guys, um, they're not used to fighting a guy that is cheating like that. They have no idea. And the other thing that we had going for us, so it was a, it was a six and a half G aircraft. There was nothing to tell on us. So as I like to say, corner speed in an F-14A was really about 425 knots, about eight Gs. <laughs> with the wings stuck at 20. So it was a big cumbersome aircraft. But if you if you knew how to, to work around some of the limitations, um, it would it had a lot of capability. Does that speak to the because I've been told that the, the Air Force are somewhat envious about the Navy in, in regards to rules and regulations that, you know, the Air Force has a book um, saying, you know, all the things that they can do. The Navy just has a book saying all the things they can't do. And if it's not on the list, you can do it. That's is, it. Is that part of that? It is part of that. Um you know, the first thing I did when I walked into Oceana is I asked the guys at my, my ready room, you know, the instructors, so who's the best F-14 pilot ever? And they all had answers. I mean, it was it was down to two or three guys. It was, you know, Dale Snort Snodgrass. Um, it was Rat Willard, Admiral Willard later. Um, but it was all the same handful of dudes. I mean, it wasn't this big list of 55 guys. Um, there was a pecking order and everyone knew who these guys were and they were all legendary. Um, but these guys also taught really well. Um, I was fortunate enough. I flew with Snort. I knew Snort. He was my uh, Commodore when I was, uh, he actually selected me to go to Top Gun. Um, and I remember he sent out the message saying, here, here are the next three crews going to Top Gun. And oh, by the way, you have to fight me before you go. So unfortunately that fight never got to happen because I was really looking forward to it. I remember calling Roscoe, that guy I told you about going, all right, I got to fight snort. Tell me what I need to do. <laughs> um, but we never got to do it before I went. And, um, but it was that ethos. I think that was passed down through generations. I know I taught my young guys how to do everything I just described to you. Um, and I'll also say that as the plane evolved with the F 14 B and certainly the D these workarounds were less required. Um, you know, with the extra thrust, quite honestly, you could literally pull the wings off an F-14 when, when you had GE engines. I mean, it was just, it was that powerful. Um, and also those, those versions, along with the, the new improved motor, uh, came a system called FEMS, 
fatigue engine monitoring system, which is that's where the plane started to tell on you. So the old 8G pole and, you know, that that started to fade away when FEM started to become, uh, and then the F-14D just did straight digital downloads. So in the Air Force's defense, a lot, you know, a lot of their planes have done that for a long time. Uh, I think the F-14A was probably the last plane that didn't really have any reporting system at all. So you were kind of on your own. I mean, you'd bend the crap out of it and you'd come back, you'd tell me, and it's, hey guys, I really pulled like eight and a half Gs. You need to look at it. So they'd look at it and they're like, that's good. I mean, the plane was durable and it also wasn't plastic. So, uh, you know, unlike the, the, the planes of today where any sort of fatigue manifests itself in a catastrophic failure, when you're talking about an old metal plane, it, you could, there were signs. I mean, we'd x-ray them. We, you know, there, there were a lot of different ways you could tell the plane was starting to fall apart. And, uh, unfortunately with this, the Hornet being composite, it starts, you know, the way you find it's falling apart is the wing falls off or something. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's so important that, you know, those systems are in place now. Do you think Buck that some of those cheats, you would have had the presence of mind to, uh, implement would you you know in, in a real engagement you, you when you think about i mean you you went through top gun you know the the sort of u.s foreign military exploitation programs are well known the red eagles and you know yeah. through the 80s and my first ceo was a red eagle okay who was that then was that nathman or uh no i had it was uh carrie silvers actually it was my okay. second ceo the dollar yeah, dollars. I'm hoping to get Dollar on the channel. I know him, so he. Oh he's, yeah, well, I, yeah, he's he was telling him I said hi. Okay, I will do. Okay, but uh, um, quick dollar story. Oh quick. yeah, go on. My favorite. So he, I'm his wingman. We're flying off into Iraq. We are not 300 feet. You know, right off the nose. They they shoot shoot me off the uh, waist. They shoot him off the, the bow. So we're both, and we just join up on the run. And uh, I am literally. I haven't joined up with them. We're not up, even up to 500 feet. Normally you climb up to 500 feet, you get outside 10 miles around from the carrier, and then you can climb up to your altitude. He's got his mask off. He's already got a cigarette lit. <laughs> I'm like, I'm looking at my reel. I go, I go, is he already smoking? I'm like, did he take off with his cigarette? In? <laughs> but that's one of my favorite dollar stories. He was awesome. Um, do, do you think do you think you'd have the presence of mind then to do those things? I mean, if you went up uh, against a real adversary, twenty nine. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I would only because Steve, I can tell you, we practiced it so often hmm. that uh, for a seasoned F fourteen A guy, it was just business as usual. I mean, it got to the point where that's exact. Like the real, you'd fly with the same Rio, so I didn't even go through that litany of the circuit breakers. I'd just say pull them. He'd pull them. I knew. And once the lights started coming on, the reduced airspeed light and the wing sweep warning light and everything else, I knew that those those were all pulled. Um, and I only had two up front that I had to pull. So I knew, I, you know, I knew if they were gone. So I knew if we were ready, the plane was ready. And then the last thing I would do is effectively, depending on what merge, you know, speed we we're merging at, it was I'd pace the wings up at 20. And then, uh, you know, all right, it's time to run away. And then I'd sweep them back as we're trying to get out of there. Uh, but I, it, it became second nature for most F-14A guys to do a lot of that. Um, some guys didn't, but I, you know, I, I can tell you that most of the guys on that list that I told you about did do it. Um, and I didn't do it nearly as much as I got older with, uh, with the newer jets. 
because quite honestly, a lot of the the tactics worked. I still would play with the wings a lot, but I didn't have to pull all the circuit breakers because the the GEs were just so powerful. You didn't really require a whole lot more. So the best fight the F-14 had was a, was a slow, I mean, you could fly an F-14D at 80 or 90 knots. Could you really? Yeah. So you get in a flat scissors, you drop the flaps, which, you know, even you, you didn't have to pull the circuit breaker to drop the flaps. You're just getting all the flaps. Um, so you're not getting clean air over your horizontal stab, but it's still so powerful. It doesn't matter. And you just sit there and you could, you didn't really use a stick. You just kind of held the stick here in the center and you just rudder walked it, but it would hold 80, 90 knots. And that's where so it, it, the idea was you get an F-16 beat down, you get into a flat scissors and he can't slow, he can't get below, you know, he, he's got the, uh, AOA limiter. So eventually he's going to fly out front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really the only way you're going to be able to to uh we call a tree and an f-16 that's about the only way you're going to beat a viper um if you stay if you think you're going to just stay in this high speed two circle 9g fight you know they, they've got nine g's we got six and a half seven you know whatever you want to say but you know they've got significantly more g they've got the combat edge suit they've got the laying back seat i mean the thing was made to pull nine g's um you know you're going to lose that fight it's just it's it's too hard. And by the way, after about 360 degrees and nine G's, you're passing out. So, yeah. Lots of talk, mostly because I've been asking about it. Then around the air to air side of things, but as referenced earlier, then the the D model had the air to ground capability. How did you operate as a unit then, in terms of being good at one mission set? or the other, or, or, or doing both. I mean, the aircraft really became multi-role. Did you employ it as a multi-role squadron or did you have a focus? No, we, we were multi-role. Uh, we, we would all deploy as multi-role squadrons. We, we talked about it cause I know the Marine Corps had done that. They, they'd had, you know, they, they had F-18Ds and F-18Cs and they would typically kind of have a squadron that was, you know, more dedicated to the air to ground mission or the air to air mission. Um, we did not, and I, I will tell you, having two people is significant in that because, um, you know, we, we obviously had guys that we had subject matter experts, SMEs in, in all of these things. So whether it was, uh, you know, GBU-24s, whether it was JDAM, whether, you know, regardless of the weapon system, whether it was, a, a, you know, AIM-54, AIM-9X, whatever the case may be, we had somebody that knew all of it about that. And... Uh, we did a good job as squadrons is coming together and, and learning from these guys. So before we would deploy, we would all freshen up on all of this. We'd, we'd had to train to all the missions. Um, that was part of our readiness matrix. So um, I can tell you it's a challenge, but it was a challenge that the, the Hornet guys have been dealing with since their inception. I mean, that plane had been doing multi-roles since it was born. So adding the air-to-ground mission to the Tomcat um, wasn't that hard only because we were so limited initially and even in the end we still our, our weapon suite was small I and mean, we carried gbus and jda i mean different forms of gbus whether it was laser guided or gps guided that was it i mean no, nobody's dropping iron bombs anywhere i mean we, we practiced it for fun but you know no one's going to say oh, yeah go for it drop an iron bomb somewhere in iraq i mean you know no one's going to give you clearance for that and they shouldn't um, so it was a question of whether it was going to be an accurate weapon or a precise weapon and, uh, dropping either of those. I mean, any guy will tell you, if you've dropped a JDAM, it's the easiest thing in the world. 
I mean, you know, my kid playing a computer game can drop a JDAM. It's it's simple. Um, are you familiar with the grant the band Dos Gringos? Yes. They have 16 guys. Yeah. The JDAM Blues. That song is classic because it is. It's like what do they call like a monkey throwing poop at the window or something? That's how easy dropping JDAM is. And LGBs, quite honestly, aren't a lot harder. Uh, you know, there's more work because you have to find the target. You know, it's not just this big mythical basket that's up in space. Um, so, and, and weather can be a challenge. There, there are some nuances to dropping an LGB, uh, but even that's on, on a nice day with admissions, things are going well. It's it's not that difficult. And so, uh, that air to, that was the limit of the air to ground capability, the, the, the Tomcat. So I didn't have to learn how to shoot laser map. I didn't have to, you know, all the things. I didn't have harm. I didn't have all the things that Hornet guys. How Hornet guys do it, I have no idea. <laughs> You know, and I know Viper guys saying, um, but you know, the Tomcat was pretty limited. We had a GBU specialty. That was it. We had a great, uh, lantern pod. Um, so our IR pod was better than anything else the Navy had at the time. And, uh, you know, AT FLIR when it came on was pretty good, but again, we had a dedicated operator and that that's key. I'm a big fan of the two seats. Was the mission the complicated part? And I'm assuming there was something about it that was complex, but because it, because weren't you CAS focused? And I don't know whether or not that's CAS in the sort of true close. Well, I, I was a FAC A. So you were a FAC A. Okay, I was a FAC A. So as a matter of fact, I was a FAC A A I I. I was a double I um, at the weapons school. But and I can tell you, FAC A was one of the most rewarding missions I've ever flown. Um, and I think any FAC A would tell you that it's. I think if you know if you had to do one mission, trying to save the guys that are you know from all sides, you know on, on the coalition side on the ground. I mean, I I flew for Brits, I flew for French, I, you, you name it. I flew missions for all those guys, and knowing that they walked away because of bombs that I was able to control and get on target um, is a one of the more fulfilling things I think any military aviator can ever do. Um, and that is a very perishable skill. Uh, being a FAC A requires a ton of training, at least being a good one. Um, you have to be, you know, positioning, seeing things, just how the the close air support, air structure works, everything. And uh, you know, the Air Force does a good job with it with their air to ground school. In the Navy, we had to go to uh, we actually learned from the Marine Corps. So I had to go to I became a Marine ground fac before we're allowed to be. A, a, a fac a fac a so i had to go to marine ground fac school which they take that seriously believe it or not <laughs> who knew but yeah marines are, are real our marines are very locked on as are yours but um yeah you don't mess around the marine corps in the in the close air support world it's 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 like the bible to them as a matter of they are our our, our uh, tactical smees on that for the u.s services um but we are, I mean, there are other platforms that try to do it single seat. I'm, I'm a big proponent that I think that mission should only be flown by two seat mm. uh, platforms. Now, the A-10 guys do a pretty good job, but they do it by flying in the section, you know, two ships. So they, you know, but flying two ships and not having a guy be able to just concentrate on writing stuff down and everything makes it a really, it's a really challenging mission um, in any situation and just doing it by yourself is brutal but uh yeah we we flew i was there in 2003 for shock and awe as at fac a and um 
that's, I flew probably in 19 days, I flew 70 hours. Really? Yeah. I was flying nine hour missions. Wow. In an F-14. Wow. Yeah. No, no getting up. <laughs> Bunch of pedal packs. It sucked. And, and so FAC A, forward air controller airborne then is... You're not necessarily the person who drops the bomb, but you are controlling a stack, a vertical stack potentially of, of you know, from Predator down to A10, Hornets, multi-service, multi-capabilities, gunships, so on and so forth. Multi-country and, sometimes. Say again. Multi-country sometimes. Multi-country. So, yeah. so what is the, you know, what what is the secret to that then? Because you're presumably having to really build a very good mental picture. Um, was, is there capability in the airplane to help you do that? You've obviously got the Rio. How does it work? It, there, there wasn't, I mean, you, every, every FAC-A had their own techniques. Uh, most of the FAC-A's that I trained, we used grease pencil and wrote on the canopy, um, as did the Rio. So we had two guys, and, and typically you divided the responsibilities. Um, usually the check-in process that was run uh, by the Rio, and then after the tactical control was was shifted to the front seat. Uh, certainly, if it was a Type One control, so there's Type One, Type Two, and Type Three close air support. And Type One is like that's that's the highest level of control required. Basically, as the you know as the 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 dropping aircraft is either you know if it's a GBU or an LGB, um, I have to be in a position to ensure that that weapon is pointed in the right direction, and if it's a heaven forbid a, a, a GP, a general purpose bomb, and he's got to drop it and then dive. And I'm literally in a dive with him. And that's what the, that's the mission we all train to is that's the hardest is okay. No kidding. I'm going to drop a, a, a 500 pound bo- dumb bomb. And so you're literally, okay. You're following the guy down the chute going, yep. That's where his nose pointed. That's where the target is. I'm pretty sure he's clear of the friendlies. You're cleared hot. Um, most of the control we were doing in Iraq was type two, which is a little more permissive. Um, there's, then there's type three, which is basically you're cleared. Here's a box. Everyone in the box is bad. Find something and can make it go away. Um, we'd get to that occasionally at the end. We were doing some of that, but most of it was type two, which is effectively uh, you, you, you have a very good feeling that the guy you're talking to you read, you read the coordinates, he reads the coordinates back to you. you. You've copied them. You understand exactly where the coordinates are. He's either got a FLIR on or he's, he's read, he's reading them off his system that he's fed into the, his uh, JDAM. So, um, and that's effectively the, the last level of, of checking that you need in that situation. Then you clear them. Uh, so that's what most close air support is now. Uh, but even that can be a challenge. If you were one seat, I don't know how the single seat guys do it. Was this then, I mean, obviously the mission itself is satisfying, and you've just said that, um, but was this f- uh, from a sort of, you know, I don't know, a seat of the pants, sort of having fun kind of you know, point of view, something that, that was enjoyable? I mean, if you've got the option of doing one or the other, which one do you do in terms of air uh, or? It, it, it's a ton of fun. Um, it's very dynamic, as you can imagine, especially trying to do a type one control and get your plane in position to follow somebody down for certainly a, a, a general purpose bomb. But uh, it's also, you know, the, the highest risk to you. I mean, to me, I, I can't imagine anything worse in my life than being responsible for 
a failed close air support mission that, that heaven forbid ends up in friendly casualties or, or civilian casualties. Um, that, you know, it's massive responsibility. It's certainly one that air, Ford air controllers airborne never take for granted. Uh, but there is an element of fun. I mean, it, it's, again, it's a dynamic and you do feel like you're part of the, the ground forces for a while. You know, those guys are down there in harm's way. Um, you know, every aviator now will tell you, certainly in Iraq and Afghanistan, the, the surface to air and air to air threat was minimal. You know, I, you're worried, more worried about your rendezvous in the tanker and running into other coalition aircraft because they're everywhere. Um, and some guys weren't great at being on the right altitudes. Um, and I'm sure every guy you've talked to has had a story of, you know, I'm, it's, everyone's tanking on goggles. It's bad weather. The tanker's in the goo. He's trying to find clear air. He can't. It's just, you know, invariably you're going to end up left to left with lights out aircraft on goggles. And you're like, I'm pretty sure that was an F-16. And I'm pretty sure he was probably 15 feet away from my aircraft. And you just, you don't even want to know. Um, But a lot of times, certainly in Iraq and Afghanistan, that was the most dangerous part of the air to air part of the mission. Uh, You know, MiG MiG 31s weren't coming after us. Their surface to air threat. When I went over 2003, we war gamed it in Tonopah. And we lost all the fighters once the first night because the Iraqis had this massive surface to air complex. They had tombstone and flap lids and all sorts of great Russian systems. And, you know, basically we were all going to die. None of that came, <laughs> nothing happened. We, we were actually in a be more danger from our own Patriot batteries. So, uh, you know, it was the, the surface to air threat that we had practiced for and imagined that never ended up materializing. And I don't, you know, no, we can second guess why that happened. But uh, bottom line, for the next three weeks, the biggest dangers a lot of us faced in the air was running into another coalition aircraft because we were everywhere. I mean, there were pill boxes all over Iraq, guys, and there were fighters coming out of LUD. There were, I mean, we were flying everywhere. So, as you can imagine, that became the big challenge. But the uh, the close air support mission was, uh, I think, crucial. And certainly, as you got closer to Baghdad, uh, we're up in Mosul, the areas where, and down in uh, the south. Uh, west side where the Marines were fighting um, to MEF, it was, it was pretty bad. So, I mean, close air support became their lifeblood for a while. How long was a cruise then? Would it be six months? Uh, I, the cruises are were typically six months. Um, when I started, my first cruise was in 93. Um, and that was, it was like clockwork, six months, you're gone. You're back in six. And uh, by the time I, my last deployment was in 2006 and it was just slightly longer. The next ones ended up being significantly longer. The guys were deployed for seven months, then eight months, then nine months. Um, by the time you're getting to nine months, uh, it it becomes a problem on the home front. If, mm-hmm. if you're not single, there's a good chance you're going to be single when you get back. Uh, you've got to have some pretty understanding family back home to deal with the extra three months. Uh, if, if you can front load that and manage expectations initially, Hey guys, it's going to be a nine month deployment. You do a lot better than the old, Hey, it's going to be six months. And then at the five month point, you find out you've got the bonus three month vacation. That's when it's really hard to call a wife and go, Hey honey. Yeah. Sorry. I'll see you in December. Um, but uh, the deployments now f- kind of fluctuate between six and eight months. 
uh, at least for the the Navy. Um, and so, did you know then when you with your with your deployment coming up? Did you know you were going to be part of Shock and Awe? Because that was so. It was March two thousand three, wasn't so it? So I got sent over. Um, I was part of a FAC eighteen that got sent over. Uh, I was not. I had just left my last squadron as a uh, as a department head, so I was a Navy lieutenant commander major. Um, I was at the weapons school teaching, and uh, they sent me back. So they, we we basically had all the FAC A's from the weapons school and a couple of FAC A's from the, the squadron that we ironically ended up joining was the one I had just left, VF2, the bounty hunters. Uh, so we ended up flying into Dubai, um, going to Bahrain, staying in Bahrain. Then we left from, we went from Bahrain into the, uh, to the carrier. They flew us out to the carrier. And so for the next month I was stationed on the Connie, which was constellation, which was my old ship. So it was like being home for me. I loved it. It was a great boat, great squadron. VF2 was a fantastic squadron. Uh, we used their jets. So it was even better because they were the planes that I was used to flying. And they were D's. So that was great. I was very happy. Um, obviously, the guys from VF2 weren't thrilled about these guys coming out to fly their planes for them. But uh, it, it was only, I think there were only six people total that were flown out. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did use some of the FAC A's from VF2. Um, that Because, I, you know, I, I, I knew them. They'd trained with us on the missions. And uh, we knew we could we could rely on them. So, so, sort of building a picture then of a of a very capable aeroplane that is uh, relevant to current conflicts um, has obviously a historical fleet defense role in which it excels. So it's a great aeroplane, and the, so then the question of the Super Hornet and of course our you know the main goal behind our conversation today is to, to sort of go through that story. Then, so the the question of the Super Hornet replacing the the Tomcat comes to bear, uh, and actually I think that. Again, I'm showing my ignorance, so forgive me. Mm-hmm. But but I think that that went on for a long time, didn't it? It wasn't a, a you know there wasn't a suggestion and then a quick decision. You know whether the Tomcat would go away and what it would be replaced by was a very long conversation. So, what were you hearing? When did you start to get an idea that the Tomcat would go away? And and what were your thoughts about it? Well, unfortunately, I found out when I was finishing advanced jet school, they killed the D. So uh, Dick Cheney, our, our, our Secretary of Defense at the time, basically got f- fed up with Grumman's overages and you know delayed kind of everything that happens with procurement aircraft to this day. Um, but he was no nonsense. And is, I'm a huge Grumman fan. I love the F-14. But they, I think, were a little arrogant in the sense that I don't think they f- thought that there would never be that Cheney had the stones to do what he did to cancel the super Tomcat. Um, so it was 93, I think 92. No, it was 91. I was still in flight school. So it was 90, 91 Cheney killed the, the super Tomcat. So just as I'm getting F 14s, I'm finding out that I'm I, you know, the plane that was supposed to carry us into the next generation uh, has been canceled. Um, it was pretty depressing. Uh, as, it, as it turns out, there were only 55 F-14Ds ever made. Uh, and they were, uh, you know, like I alluded to earlier, they were the most capable aircraft on the flight deck when I when we put them to bed. 
which is disappointing. I mean, you know, when you, you, you talk about retiring the most capable aircraft that was in the inventory, um, it's a shame. You know, I had a lot of things going for me, me and the other squadrons. It was, it was VF-213 and VF-31. Um, and at the time, I don't know if you knew this, but you see, so you go from being the executive officer to the commanding officer of a squadron in the Navy. So I was EXO on deployment. When we got back from deployments, when I took command. So while we were at sea, uh, my CEO, Rick LeBranch, Twig, great guy, um, you know, we were talking about this. We had 11 F-14s. VF-213 had 11 F-13, uh, F-14s. They were the best F-14s that were ever in existence because we had every part you know, we're the last two squadrons. So every part that's been created, every bomb that's ever, you know, every, every Phoenix, every, you name it, it was all out on the carrier because we were the last, you know, show in town. So it was, we had the best maintainers because there were a bunch of Tomcat maintainers who wanted to keep fixing F-14s. Uh, we had great pilots because there were a lot of guys that keep, wanted to keep flying it. So I I don't want to say we, we had a super squadron, but we did in, in essence, because we had, we had great air crew. We had the best maintainers that I've ever seen in my life. Um, and we had planes that every system on them worked. So these 22 F-14s ended up getting retired within the, you know, when we got back, two 13s went away right away. And so my 11 ended up getting, as I said, phased out over the next six months. They were the best planes I've ever flown in the Navy to include my brand new off the line lot 29 super hornets that came from the boeing factory in, in st louis right. i mean that, these these planes just couldn't be beat um now obviously the great thing about the super hornet is that it's modern it's digital it's got all the capabilities it can be upgraded uh but when it came out i remember sitting there with my airwing commander who was initially he was a hornet baby but he was a great tomcat pilot not many Hornet babies are very good at flying the time cap, but this one, got, this guy was Dan Dixon. And I'm talking to his call sign was Dix. So I'm, I'm, I'm Dix. I cannot believe. And I listed like 11 things that the super Hornet didn't have that the super Tomcat did. I'm like, what are you morons? You know, Hornet guys, why isn't this shit in the software? Like you don't have a three degree tick mark. You don't have a hot cursor. You don't. And I listed all this shit and he knew about all of this because he'd been flying the super Tomcat. And he's like, Puck, I have no idea. He's like, but guess what? You're going to the Hornet Executive Steering Committee meeting next month, and you're going to tell them all of this. I'm like, all right, sir. So that was my mission for the next six months, was basically telling the Hornet guys, hey, these are capabilities that the Tom, the Super Tomcat has right now that you don't have. And by the way, I need, because I, I, I become a cripple. If I don't have this stuff in my plane, I don't understand it. They literally didn't have, when I say hot cursor, they, in order to do digital bull off a tactical brock haul, they had to do math. I'm not even kidding you. I'm like, you did math in the plane? My head would have blown up. I like, you didn't just like, I, you know, in the, in the Super Tomcat, you just hooked around the screen. You're like, oh, they're, you know, they're, they're calling it. There's a, a digital bull call. You just move your cursors and you're like, there they are. I'm literally like, how do you guys do that? Like, oh, you just do math. And like, if he's 10 degrees left of your head, you're heading, you're heading 180 in there. I'm like, you literally get your bra call off. It was the bra that they didn't have. I'm trying to remember. They they had digital bull, but they didn't have the bra call. So you had to like reverse engineer your bra call. I'm like, I can't do that. So that's bearing range altitude. 
Yeah, during range altitude. So if you know, let's say you're heading 180 and the, the, the contact's at 10 left. It's so, you know 170, and then you had to kind of figure out how far he was. Like, all right, that's a 25 mile range tick. He's 27 miles. I'm like, that doesn't even work for missile validation. I'm like, you're not even close enough. You're just like picking a target. The guy off my left side, I just shot you. <laughs> how does that work? This is our newest fighter. But they fixed it, obviously, in later software builds. But the fact that it, it came to the market without it, I'm just, you know, I don't know who was designing it, but I feel like beating them. Is that a an explanation then for some for, for, for many of the frustrations in that intrinsically there's nothing wrong with the Super Hornet, but it wasn't mature enough to take over from the Tomcat or... Because people talk about legs, people talk about range, ability to you know go a certain distance, hit a target, shoot something down, whatever, and come back to the carrier. Uh, and of course, that's not so much um, something you can fix. That is intrinsic to the airplane. Um, you know, air to air refueling and fuel tanks and conformal tanks. You can add all that shit in, but ultimately you're limited. Right. Um, so, so, so is it a combination of both those things? Some intrinsic limitations and then some maturity issues. Um, Steve, I think it's very well said. There are some, I, the maturity thing, I, I understand because they're trying to get the thing out. You know, software builds, every time you, you add something, something else crashes. So obviously the software engineers are very reluctant to do a lot and they just try to add on as they find that it's stable. The last thing you want to do is end up having a guy lose his, his displays behind the ship at night because you added some capability that wasn't tested properly. So I understand they're, they're, deliberate nature i'll call it but you're right about the intrinsic part like they fixed the range of the hornet by just making a bigger hornet and the reality is it's like hey yeah it's like if you parked a hornet a tomcat and you slapped a super hornet between them it's a natural you know they just it's like a perfect the, the super hornet's roughly 25 percent bigger than a hornet and the the, the tomcat was 25 percent bigger than a super hornet literally if you were in the whole short you'd, you'd laugh it's like little medium big and yeah, it had bigger range, but it was a bigger fighter. And one of the things that I learned flying the Super Hornet, Tomcat guys actually ended up being, I won't say better, but much more natural at it because you actually needed rudder in a Super Hornet. In a Hornet, the, it's those are brakes. The, the rudder pedals for a Hornet pilot are brakes. Um, but the Super Hornet was big enough and the software for the digital flight controls was written in such a way that it really needed a little rudder here and there, which Tomcat guys were used to using because our plane initially didn't have digital flight controls at all. So rudder was not a foreign concept to us. Um, so when we transitioned to it, it was something that we started incorporating and Hornet guys were like, what are you doing? I'm like, that's rudder. I'm like, oh yeah, it gets the nose around a little faster. It works. Um, and you know, they figured it out quickly, but it, it was something I found a little funny. I mean, this, is most Hornet guys will tell you, yeah, those are my brake pedals down there. Um, Cause the flight control systems on a Hornet are just fantastic. It just, it doesn't require anything. It's just, it's all there. You want to go left, you, you just move the stick. So it, it does all coordination for you um, as most fighters do, but the, the super Hornet does require a little. And um, as I used to say, I used to fly supersonic fighters. Now I fly sonic fighters. <laughs> the is I, Came back, the squadron next to us was the Pukin Dogs, VF-143. And one of my good friends from uh, the Naval Academy was the, the CO, brand new CO. And we've been at sea when he took command. So I walk in and I'm like, Cal, congrats, man. You know, how do you like the Super Hornet, everything else? Because we were about to transition in a few months. 
He's like, Pac, you'll love it. It's a great jet. It's got all sorts of stuff. He's like, but you're gonna have to kill all the witnesses. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, don't go to emerge. And he's like, if you go to emerge, kill everybody. He's like, you're not running away from shit. He goes, this thing can't get out of its own way. And I'm like, what do you mean? And I, we did, I, I went to the first merge. I'm like, okay, yeah, there's a guy back there. Let's go. 0.98, 0.99. I'm like, dear God, we're not going anywhere. We're stuck here. It, it literally, and if you put pylons on it, and I only flew mine slick. I mean, we didn't have any reason for anything other than a centerline drop tank. So basically it was about as conformal as you could get. It was not a wartime loadout and it was still a pretty slow plane. I mean, you could get to one, one, but you know, Viper guys would laugh at it. If they saw it, they'd be like, I, you know, an F-16 looks like it's going fast taxiing down the runway. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the super Hornet is not running away from any fights. So you're gonna have to kill everybody. Is, is that, um, I, I mean, it sounds like a silly question, but maybe you could explain some of the relevance of that speed thing that other than running away, um, because presumably when you're taking missile shots, you want to go fast, exchange, extend the range of the missile, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. As they always like to say, the, uh, the Phoenix loved altitude, the Sparrow loved speed. Um, you know, the best thing you can do with a Sparrow, and I, I'm using the Sparrow because we didn't have AMRAM. Everyone else who's going to watch this is going to laugh because they're all AMRAM shooters. But um, yeah, the Sparrow, it, it really significantly increased its range and its its capabilities if you were supersonic when you shot it. Um which wasn't a problem in F-14. Even the TF-30s, you could get supersonic pretty quickly, um, as long as the engines didn't stall. The engines were working, you were fine. But the GE engines, I went Mach 2 and an F-14D. I'm not supposed to say that, because 188 was the NATOP's limit. But um, I was on a profile. It was a very fast uh, D from VF-2 when I was a department head. I was a maintenance officer, and we were flying it. And my Maria goes, I think this thing can go Mach 2. I'm like, well, let's find out. And we did. We lost part of my, by the way, I find out why there was a 188 limit because I, I lost about six feet of my vertical stab. The, the rudder de-land and fell off. I'm like, that was a little unfortunate. Um, but yeah, it was hard to explain to the CEO on that one. Uh, but it was a fast plane. I mean, the plane, it, it would go easily 1.5 without a whole lot of effort. And it would go supersonic on the deck. The Hornet didn't have those problems. The Hornet... The Hornet's fast, doesn't do, do real well, low altitude, getting fast. Um, and the Super Hornet's worse. The Super Hornet, it, it, as my friend, as Cal told me, and I learned this, it'll get to 0.9 like that. It'll get, you know, it'll get up and go. But once you hit 0.9, it's like, it just slows down. And um, it, it's kind of hard to get it through the number. Uh, so it's not about, it's not about specific excess power, then it's about drag. So yeah. it's, it's a, just a draggier airframe. Well, did it, especially, I mean, you heard about the pylons, right? No. How they can't it out? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's how they fix that. Um, genius. They uh, So we had problems with weapon separation on the initial. So it's got an extra weapon yeah, okay. uh, station on it. So it carries a shitload of things. Um, but it's got three. And the inboard one, so they, they had problems with the bomb-to-bomb -bomb collision when they were starting to do the testing. And it was a massive problem, as you can imagine. Like, yeah, bombs hitting bombs near your plane is not something you, you need to have happen. So the answer, the cheap answer, and I think it's still in play. If you look at a, a, a Super Hornet, you can see it if it's got its 
pylons on is they can't, the, the, the pylons are slightly canted out. I mean, they're literally like speed brakes. So if you've got your pylons on, you are really limited. I mean, it's, it'll overpower to about, like I said, 0.9, but I'm not even sure you can get the number with those things on there. Um, Cause it's so hard. It's just, it creates so much drag, but that's how they fix the bomb to bomb separation is they created airflow. Yeah. It didn't seem like that made sense to me either. Wow. Yeah. But check so, a picture out sometime. Yeah. So you, so you, fl- so you flew these, I think I remember you said for six months or a year, but it was, it was the last thing you flew. So about a year. So, but, but, so that didn't convert you then you haven't, you didn't come out of that into this. Oh no. Oh no. Okay. I mean, you don't fly a plane for, you know, you're basically your entire adult life. And mm. especially the, like I said, the D was, I saw what the F-14 should have been all along. Mm. I, I wasn't in love. I, I'll never defend the A to a point. I mean, I, I love having flown the A. It was a nostalgic, like I wanted to be an F-4 pilot as a kid. So to me, the F-14A, when I was in early, that was the last real manly fighter. I mean, that was our version of an F F-4. Yeah. Um but it, it had so many limitations that you just it, to, to do what to learn how to cheat the way I had to learn how to cheat. Well, there's a lot of guys did uh, to be as lethal as you could be. Isn't something that our fighter pilots should have to deal with. Um, I mean, I, I guarantee you F-16 guys weren't learning the same shit. We were, you know, to be survivable um, F-15C guys weren't learning that stuff. So, when I started to fly the B, I realized, oh, these motors are great. But then I saw, once you get the APG 71 and the, the IRST and all the other things that the D had, I was like, why aren't there 500 Ds right now roaming Oceana uh, and Miramar? But that's another story. Um, but it was, it was really sad to see a plane with those capabilities. It was still lethal when it died. And that's, I think, unfortunate. We retired a capability before we'd replaced the capability. And, I, you know, I like the Super Hornet. The helmet-mounted sight was awesome, is awesome. Um, I have friends to this day that work on the software, so I know what the software's been upgraded to since my retirement. And it's, it is becoming the fighter that it, it should be, um, should have been born as. And outside of its speed issues, um, you know, it's, it's a very capable multi-role aircraft. I mean, I, and it's, it's not that expensive. I think, it, like I said, in my tiered defense discussion, I think it absolutely has a place. Yeah. If, if I'm going into China, I'm, I'm going to have 300 super Hornets and I'm going to have my F-35s and F-22s behind them. Mm-hmm. And you're going to get all of this. Um, it carries 12 AMRAM. You know, I mean, who, who does that? I mean, obviously we don't have that many anymore, but uh, who knows for China, we might pull those out. And, you know, so at that point you just got two six shooters, got two belt fired, belt fed AMRAM. Um, that's a good problem to have. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that's what I was thinking. You, you're back to your earlier point about them. You know, something, something like uh, the old J7s being launched just to soak yeah. up, soak up whatever it is that you've got to throw at them. That's it. Um, F-35 sitting behind a bun- bunch of AMRAM trucks uh, in front of them, um, just just carrying and launching that stuff while the F-35 or whoever it is guides them or whatever it is, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's exactly what we do. 
but it, it, you got to worry because I, you know, Amram. I think I, I can't imagine that an Amram is slightly more expensive or less expensive than a J7. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. J, it gets down to the point where we're, we're we're shooting down planes that are less expensive than the missiles we're shooting them down with. Yeah. So not great economics. Um, that's true, though. I mean, if, if you think about the whole of Iraq and Afghanistan, that's true. Yeah. Using a even even a JDAM costs money, and you're, you're oh, yeah. using it on a, the back of a tech or you know a, a truck or. <laughs> Well you said. Know. Good point. You know, <laughs> You're right. We've been doing this for we've been doing this for centuries. <laughs> we can spend more. Watch us. I think the economics of war only work for the defense contractors, don't they? So, uh, <laughs> so, so one thing I wanted to ask you about. Then you mentioned it, and it's usually one of the things that people point to when they talk about retiring an older airplane in the vertical mm-hmm. commas, because everything is F sixteen is old, F fifteen is old, oh, yeah. F eighteen is old. I mean, it's yeah, all the planes old. I grew up with are old now. <laughs> but one of the things people talk about is mission capable rate, and you talked about how, of course, you had great maintainers towards the end when there were those guys who just wanted to stay with the Tomcat, you had all the spare parts and so on. The Iranians seem to have done a really good job of keeping their Tomcats flying. Was it a, is it a reliable airplane generally? No. No. And I, I, I've heard mixed reports. I, I think they fly just because they put a lot of blood, sweat and tears to making them fly. I don't think those things are mission capable. And I can tell you that the, 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 the N54s that we sold them, at first off, they were M54 Alphas, which was a, a primarily a useless weapon. Um, <laughs> the first iteration of the Phoenix. Uh, and it takes capable, knowledgeable, and uh, and and the parts uh, people to maintain those missiles. So, I mean, you, you think about it. If, if we sold them those, those are 40-year-old missiles. I promise you none of those missiles are coming our way. You, you know, if we were to go over the border with iran they may throw up some f-14s but it, it isn't going to have a, a working phoenix on board and uh i have a hard time thinking you know by the end there there were only probably 30 or 40 maintainers that knew how to keep an aug nine running that's an r navy i promise you there isn't anybody keeping their aug nines running and without the parts I have a hard time believing those things do anything other than take off, fly, attack, and approach back to their their airfield. Mm. So I'm not real worried about what uh, Iran's doing with their F-14s. Um, the, ta- the, the that was the death knell of the Tomcat, though. You're right. Is that it was a hard plane to maintain. Everything about the F-14, quite honestly, it was it's hard to fly. It was hard to fight. It was really hard to fix. Um, and you know, quick story. So the 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 panel fasteners on the on a Tomcat were fastened by a thing called a tridar. All right. So it was it was a Grumman specific fastener, and we had on a panel that was you know we'll say three feet by two feet. They were every inch. I'm like, I don't know how fast you think this plane's going. That panel is not coming off. And then you look at the Hornet. And so anytime you had to replace a box, you know, you got a guy with his tridar and he's doing, you know, and there's 75 fasteners around this one panel. You you do the math on that with two guys doing whatever. I mean, it took 10 minutes just to get the panel off. I'm sitting there watching a Hornet next to me. And this is when I was a young guy. He had a box he had to get replaced. A guy go with a T-handle, go click, 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 click. There were four panel, four fasteners along the bottom, four on the sides. 
That was it. In like seven seconds, he had his panel open, his box replaced. My guy's halfway through the F1 formula speed, you know, pit stop. And I'm like, dear God, they, they figured apparently that panel isn't coming off with just the eight fastener. So some of the things that we had in the Tomcat were, were absolutely over-engineered because the, the, that added to the time, everything about the F14 was hard to fix. So um, by the time we went away, I think they were saying it, it took like 20 maintenance man hours per flight hour where the Hornet was almost one-to-one. I mean, you know, that, that's a massive footprint. So uh, we got it down with the F-14D because it didn't, that, that was a much more reliable aircraft, but it still was never what the Hornet was. The Hornet's just a very reliable aircraft and the Super Hornet's the same way. It doesn't break. Uh, when it breaks, it's very easy to fix. Going, going back to the Iranian side of things, you, you right at the beginning of the conversation talked about how when in those last few weeks in September of 2006, you flew some aircraft to museums and, and so on, and you flew some to Davis Month and to the, the um, Boneyard. Mm-hmm. And then I think the Navy, I don't know if it was the Navy that decided it or if it was the administration and therefore the Secretary of the Navy, whoever it is, said, well, we're going to just go and pulp all those other tomcats because we don't want the parts falling into the hands of the iranians um you've already talked without mentioning it about your love for the airplane your affection for the airplane flying it for 20 years um without using those words um i'm creating um that uh that sort of emotion i don't know if that's how you really feel about it but did was that a painful thing to watch or to see or to learn about did you feel an affection for the you know, the metal that is the airplane. You can't fly a plane and any pilot will tell you that if you fly a plane that long, um, especially is one as venerable as the F-14, you you grow an attachment. And I'll share a quick story. We we flew the last F-14 up to to, uh, Republic on on Long Island. So where the actual Grumman Ironworks were, where they built all the F-14s. And there were 5,000 people surrounding the airfield. And these are people that made F-14s and made, you know, part of the Grumman Ironworks and it was a very emotional day because the last thing that you do, I don't know if you're familiar with how, so I didn't have a lot of issues with the F-14D because there aren't a lot of parts there, you know, if it fit in an F-14A, very few parts from the A worked in a D and vice versa. So the, when they were pulping a lot of the planes, it was the A's and the B's because the, the B outside of the engines was identical to an A. So the A's and the B's were getting pulped. The D's, they were just, we were calling D-milling. So they took anything that could be used in another version and they took them out. And there wasn't much. One of the things was the engines. So the last thing that they would do when you're bringing the plane to a museum where it's never going to be used is you, as the engines are spooling down, you pull the, 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 the fuel shutoff handles and you fire the fire extinguisher bottles down each of the engines, which basically ruins the motors. So that's the last thing you do. So as, as the crew is shutting down the plane, you hear the engine shut down, and you realize this is the last time anyone's going to hear an F-14 wind down. Um, and then you hear them blow the, the bottles, and you hear the engine choke. It, it was a little emotional. I'm like, you know, you, you know it's trying not to, to – basically the engines are trying not to die, but they're dying. And, uh, you know, knowing that that was the last time that that, that plane was going to fly um, – yeah, it was it was an emotional day for everybody. I think certainly the, the people that built it, and 
it's now been moved. It was in front of the Grumman Ironworks, but uh, that building has been since been sold. So they moved it to the uh, Republic First Flight Museum up there in Long Island. And um, I know I have a good friend up there who's a longtime Grumman employee who's taking care of it, which is great, knowing that you know that plane is still being looked after. What did you do for your Finney flight in the Tomcat? My final flight in the Tomcat? Um, I actually wasn't in the last flight. I, uh, I, I did the last flight at Oceana with a close friend of mine. Um, I let one of my department heads, who's a good friend of mine, uh, one of my major uh, lieutenant commanders, uh, two of them actually fly the last flight. Um, there were some f- family issues and things, and I, they were great guys. So um, it was Fitz Gentry and uh, Spool. Uh, Chris Richard was the, the driver, um, but great get, great guys. And uh, so they flew the last plane up to Bethpage. And, um, but for the, my last flight, we just, we came back into Oceana. We did a 600 knot break, carrier break. So it was, um, you know, the, the tower was thrilled. They're like, hey, this is it, Oceana. And we were Felix one. Felix won last Tomcat and they're like, field's yours, do whatever you want. So um, it, that was another bittersweet day. There were a lot of bittersweets by the end there. Uh, you know, that said, I'm sure everyone, certainly my Hornet friends were thrilled to see it finally go away. Cause you know, between the last deployment and the last, there were, there were the last F-14 things going on for six months. And, you know, I am proud to say I had the last F-14 bolter. So the aircraft here, my guys were sure to get, I have a trophy lying around here somewhere. They gave me the hook point from the plane. Hey, congrats. You have the last F-14 bolter. I'm like, thanks guys. You're all dicks. So, um, but even the VF-31 guys, by the end, we'd all been kind of tiring of all the last things. And so um, as sad uh, as it was, it was also a little relief there to finally have it all behind us and we can move on to flying super hornets. As, as the CEO then, did you feel a sense of, you've kind of already referenced the fact that, you know, taking it back to the factory where it was built, all those people, you know, lots of people had had an investment of some description or another in the airplane, but did you feel an obligation or a sense of responsibility to do something special? Did you throw a bash where everybody was invited do you want to go out quietly? What, what was the... the the Navy did that for us? So there was a ceremonial Tomcat sunset. Uh, it was a few weeks before the actual last flight. A lot of, there was a ceremonial last flight where we had hundreds of people back in. All you know, a lot of F fourteen people made the journey back to Oceana for it. Uh, and some people think that was the actual last flight. It was. It was probably three weeks prior to the actual last flight. Um, and so there was a big ceremony and that was sort of the rest of the world's opportunity to finally put the F-14 to rest. Because at that point, there were only two planes left. Um, after that ceremony, uh, the the second to last one went away three days later. So we only had the last plane on my line. Um, and uh, that, you know, we flew that. I think I have the last flight date here. Yeah, October 4th. It's on the plaque up there. Um, so October 4th was the actual last day that we flew. So September was the ceremonial last flight. We had the mayor of Ocean or Virginia Beach. We had admirals. Everybody was out for that. Um, 
in that, that was a good time, but uh, I luckily I didn't have to. I wasn't responsible for other than hosting it in my spaces. I didn't have to do anything else. And do they give you an actual last date on which you could be called into action? So you've got to remain operational until this date, and then you can wind down thereafter. Yes, Steve. Actually, that's funny because we we came back from the the last deployment in March. I took command in April, and then in June we were still we're called the surge carrier. So we still had to be deployable. So if the, if the balloon goes up and we're going to war with China, this carrier is getting sent and we're the last ones. So we actually would get sent back. Um, so we had to go re recarrier call. Uh, so the whole squadron at this point, I'm down to eight jets. Um, but eight was the minimum that we could deploy with. So they're like, okay, you're going to keep eight until after the surge is over. Uh, we went out and we spent two weeks on a carrier. We got all our mission calls back up, you know, after the couple months stand down of coming back from a deployment, we had to get night current again. So we night carrier call, uh, everyone, and that's where I had the last bolter. Um, but, uh, and there, there were the last day that we flew off of that ship, there were probably a hundred reporters in my ready room. Wow. So those those last two weeks, that, that was the last time that the F-14 was on a carrier. Mm-hmm. And so there were people from all over. I uh, I had Dutch reporters, Japanese reporters, History Channel was out there. Um, there was a lot of people. Uh, and fortunately, you know, my big concern was keeping everyone safe because at that point, my, my, my primary worry was that somebody's not going to be focused and going to hit the back of the ship at night. And fortunately my guys were, they stayed focused. They didn't let any of that stuff, the peripheral stuff bother them. And uh, we were able to get those planes back to Oceania safely. When, when you read about, in, you know, if you, if you're an avid reader of sort of military aviation, you'll, you'll inevitably come across a book where someone talks about winding down a squadron or an airplane being retired. And I read one recently, it's a fantastic book. Uh, it's it's by um, I don't know. I'll put a link in the description. I can't remember who, okay. who it was by, but he talks about um, the RAF retiring the F four, and there being this sort of conflict in his mind between uh, wanting to you know, get the next assignment and not miss because all the guys are jumping ship to go right. get the next assignment, get a flying assignment, but not wanting to leave the F four because he was in love with it so much. Effectively, yeah. was was there a similar thing going on then with with your guys? I mean, did you? Were they Absolutely. concerned about what the follow-on assignment would be, and uh, was there a conflict in that respect? Yeah, I, I think everyone. Um, you know, I requested F fourteen when I screened for CO. You put in your what you know what you'd like to do, and I said I, I want to just fly F fourteen still if I can. And I said, you know, that would be my first preference. So you, you could kind of slot them out. So they knew that I at least wanted to stay. Some guys, as you alluded to, were ready to, to transition and get get on with flying the Super Hornet. Um, I wanted to keep flying an F-14. And I had guys that way as well. And the other uh, dynamic that I had going on in my squadron is I was losing my Rios. So I was going from a Tomcat to a single-seat Super Hornet. So in addition to, you know, Tomcat squadrons were inherently bigger anyway. We had more planes. We had certainly more guys because we had two seats. Uh, you know, at one point I had, I remember my first all officers meeting as a CEO of a Super Hornet squadron. 
my duty officer is one of my best guys. Drama was his call sign. I'm like, drama, where the hell is everybody? Like, Skipper, this is everybody. And I'm looking at it. And I'm like, there's five guys sitting in seats because I haven't gotten all my new Super Hornet guys yet. And so the other guys have already gone to other squadrons. And so I'm sitting I'm like, all right, ALM's canceled. We're just going to the O Club. Let's go, let's go drink. So um, we had, I, and because I'd lost all my Rios. And I, what I was able to do is I was able to at least protect my Rios, who now Wizzos, by the way, in the Super Hornet. Um, I was at least able to keep them in my squadron to go through the uh, FRS, the RTU for the Air Force guys. So um, they could at least train in the Super Hornet with us. Uh, because the option was that they they were all going to Lemoore. So they were not only getting kicked out of the Tomcat, but they were getting sent. Most of these guys are getting sent out to California, Lemoore. And I don't know if you know about Lemoore, but it's not a garden spot. It's not, you know, uh, it's a great place to fly. I'll put it that way. It's like Fallon. It's like, it's great flying. When people say it's great flying, the rest, you know, everything else sucks. Um, so these poor guys were, I was able to at least keep them in Oceana and Virginia beach another five or six months before they got shipped out to Lemoore into the high desert. And, um, so, you know, we, we, we went through that, but going to a single seat squadron, I think was a big transition for all of us. Um, because you lose some of the camaraderie single seat squadrons tend to be, be candid, they're just less fun. And the reason they're less fun is because there's still the same amount of jobs generally, but now there's just half as many people to do them. So single seat guys, I, you know, I saw it my entire career. I, I one of my best friends and uh, our sister squad, I lost our sister squad. And so the, the sister squad that was, we lost, we used to have two F-14 squadrons. We lost one. And so our sister squadron became a, a Hornet squadron. Uh, the Gunslingers, VFA 105, great squadron. And one of my best friends in that squadron, a guy named Mark Scheidt, I'm like, his call sign was Chuck. I'm like, Chuck, what are your jobs? And he had like three super important jobs. I'm like, dude, every one of those, you know, in addition to flying a, a, a Hornet. And I'm like, what? He goes, what's your job? I'm like, I'm a coffee mess officer. Like I order t-shirts. It's like, we had two guys for every one of these jobs. So those guys were inherently, we'd go in there and I'm like, well, no wonder they're not fun. They're, they're completely overworked. And that's sort of what we've ended up becoming. I, I got to see that transition from a fun laid back two seats, super Tomcat squadron to a kind of more uptight overworked super Hornet squadron. So that, that dynamic was a little painful to swallow. That's a, a, a topic we haven't, if you've got time, yeah. A few, few more questions. Absolutely. A topic we haven't really explored then is the dynamic between front and back seater. And it's noteworthy to me uh, when you talk to, say, Strike Eagle guys, you'll get two sorts of character when in this in this topic. So one will say, no, there's no way I'm letting him run the radar. I'm, I'm the pilot. I'm going to run the radar. That's my domain. I'm, I'm, I'm in charge of that. And of course, you know, there are, you know, there were conventions, I think, through the, the 90s and the early noughties the 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 wizard would run the radar up until the merge and then the pilot would take over and now i think that's reversed and now well it's, it's changed now the the pilot does run the radar pretty much all the time especially now they've got the ESA radar and they can do time sharing right so, you know the guy in the back can have it in etogram mode if he needs to um with the org nine you've already described the necessity for that guy in the back who's an expert in just the mechanics of it you know making sure it works when it fails yeah. and then and then employing it and he had all the switchology or or i guess she in later days uh, possibly as well 
then you get the APG-71, um, where I'm assuming you had more control as a front-seater over the radar. So a little bit, okay. So Slightly more, yeah. The, it, Steve, honestly, the the, the front-seat capability, the, the, the super t- the, the D, was not significantly better than it was for the A and the B. Okay. We, we had a few more modes. Uh, there were very limited modes in the A and the B, the A, uh, with the AUG-9. Um, you had pilot lock-on mode, PLM, which was basically a hot mode that gave you right around the uh, armament data line of the, of the plane. So basically, if you're looking at somebody, I could get a lock on them. Um, and then you had uh, pilot auto lock-on PAL, which had basically two different radar, again, effectively a primarily useless mode. Um, we had a couple other useless modes in the F-14D, but again, I underlined useless. Um, so, I mean, it, it would, they were they were fine ACM modes. I mean, they were, and that, that was when, the, when, the, when you got to post-merge or to the merge, basically, that's when the pilot owned the radar. And at that point, really, another reason I'm a big fan of two seats is having two sets of eyeballs look for guys is huge. I can't tell you how many fights I won against a single seat guy because he lost me. It's like, and I, I don't know how you lose. And I'm in a Tomcat. I mean, it's, I, you know, so if I'm not blocking out the sun, I don't know how you lose me. Um, but having two, very rarely are two guys going to lose the guy you're fighting. So um, having just the next pair of eyeballs in the plane always was a, a warm fuzzy for me. But yeah, the the lock on modes, the the, uh, the pilot modes in the Tomcat, all versions was not significant now we did have that problem in the super hornet you know i was an e guy so it wasn't an issue but i can tell you the f guys certainly once aisa came on um my plans were plumb for aisa but we were the last lot 29s were the last ones to come out of the, sh- the shop without aisa everyone out after that had aisa um they've since retrofitted aisa into them uh yeah they, they we've We've had to rewrite our tactical doctrine a half a dozen times already, and I can't even tell you now who's running the radar at which point an intercept. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, I think it's the same way that you just described that it. it's reverted to the driver running the long range, um, and letting the the pilot or the Rio Wizzo, always be Rios to me, um, the Wizzo run the uh, air to ground mode. Now that said, if there's no air to ground mode, you know I, I I would rather have my Rio run the radar. So that's just me. I mean, I know a lot of pilots get touchy about that stuff, but not having grown up manipulating the radar a lot, I, I will tell you, I was very touchy about my Erst. Um, the F-14D Erst is something that, you know, shit, they're now retrofitting it on the Super Hornet, which is funny. They're putting it on a drop tank, but... Um, that's the Legion pod, is it? Is it? Yeah, well, it's... But the Erst was... on. I remember getting my tape. We we they, we we went to uh, Nellis, uh, and this is just as the F twenty two is being born. This is before it's com- kind of common knowledge. We could find that thing. We couldn't see it on the radar. It's we found it on Erst, and you know Air Force grabbed those tapes. They went back. I don't know if you could still because this was before it became you know before it went to production mode. So I don't know if they ever fixed that. But not and, and this wasn't even an afterburner. This was just you know, military rated thrust from below, you could find them on the Erst. Uh, that, that was a really capable system. What, what, uh, I, I mean, I don't mean how did it work, as in what, what yeah. do I think we know, we know how it works, but how was it presented to you? Did you have a, was it displayed to you or the guy in the back? Or It, it was, call, you could call it up on any MFD. 
Okay. Primarily, the uh, Top Gun recommendation was that the pilot ran it, Rio ran the radar, pilot ran the Erst, because the Erst didn't require a whole lot. It, it basically had trackball scan modes, had a trackball scan auto and a trackball scan manual, um, and it had two different versions of the, the. You could use data page where it would just it, it was it would basically look like a radar page, um, not a raw radar page, but just you know it would give you track files and whatnot, like a B scope. Right. Exactly. The, I, and again, I wasn't a D baby, but I, when I was a department head, I went to a squadron and probably the best D driver ever lived, a guy named Keith Kimberly. He was a D baby from, you know, inception. He had almost 3000 D hours. So he was my roommate. I'm like, all right, dude, you got to teach me how this earth, well, you know, what is this earth and what can it do for me? And by the time we would have, I, you know, I'll you, Grumpy and I will have fights all day or who is the earth operator. Cause that thing. I would run it in raw image mode. So you're literally, and the cool thing about the image mode is when you sh threw it out there, you could see the clouds. Like, so you knew exactly what section of sky your radar was looking at by what was on your, your image. So, you know, here, here's a great example. So we're in Iraq, our tanker is 190 miles away. I can see it on link 16. I know exactly where he is. And I'm looking, and of course, even the you know, AUG-9 isn't going to find him. APG-71 isn't going to find him at that range. The Erst, I throw the Erst up there, and there is a big plane with three little planes behind it no on my Erst at 190 miles. And I go, I locked it on, and you could slave the radar to the Erst. So I go, hey, the Erst's locked on the tanker. And the guy, was he was pissed first off. He's like, you bastard, you found him before I did. And then he couldn't get a lock to like 100 miles. So he's finally like 100 miles. Like, All right, I've gotten locked. I'm like, I'm glad you could join the fight. But that's, I mean, the Erst was a massive capability. And that was another thing I was pissed about in the Super Hornet. I'm like, where's my Erst? Like, it doesn't have one. I'm like, why not? I'm like, man. I'm like, great answer. <laughs> and it's not the MiG-29 SC-27 shitty Russian Erst. This is a, a real weapon capability. Wow. Yeah. So, so there's another question I wanted to ask you, and it kind of relates to a little bit to what you're talking about, um, which is the, the pro proliferation, potentially, or maybe not, of UAPs, um, you know, unidentified aerial phenomenon. For anybody who's not familiar with the acronym, it used to be called UFOs, but more more acceptable to call it UAPs. Again, yeah. another conversation I was having someone recently was the increased number of ACER radars maybe the reason why there is a corresponding increased number of uap sightings because these things can be spotted by acer but maybe not by you know planner array Normal radar yeah radars like you know, apg 71 apg 70. did you ever see anything like that did you ever see anything on earth that was that corresponding? I, to I did not know um i do know i'm very good friends one of the guys in my top end class is the guy that started a lot of this in the navy dave fravor it's called sign sex or i guess it's x now um, but he's, he, he's been in TV shows and whatnot. Cause mm. he, and I would have thought that it was all crazy crap, but I know sex. He's a great dude. He's a smart guy. And I have no doubt that, you know, I would, if he's saying he saw it, he saw it. So I don't have any personal experience with it, but other than, you know, guys, I know, I trust, um, have said they've seen things that, Hey, I don't know what it is. And I, I think the new acronym probably makes sense. I mean, who knows what it is. I mean, you know, how long has Dark Star been around? So it's like, um, you know, who knows what the skunks work, Skunk Works is doing next. But, um, yeah, this was not an area where you expect to see something. He was over the water on the east coast of 
the U.S. So he he was like he and he was said he went left to left with it. And he had the HUD footage, of course, that went away. So who knows where that is? But um, he swears that he saw something. And um, like I said, I trust him, but I, I never had any sightings of that. And the Earth, it picked up a lot of stuff. But like I said, it uh, it all made sense at the time. What would you, as as a, a seasoned, um, you know, you've got almost three thousand hours, two thousand eight hundred or so of of, of Tomcat time. Um, what 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 do you think these things are? Would would you do you have a theory? You see, I haven't really thought about it. I I think it's something. I mean, I I think we're naive to think we're the only ones out here. <laughs> you know, that the Earth is the one place in the world that there's life. Now, whether that life's intelligent and is creating flying objects and they're out visiting things, who knows? Um, I, you know, that's, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about it. I, I tend to be a little more pessimistic, I guess, and think that it's probably something explainable, Mm -hmm. but I'm also not close-minded enough to think that it's impossible, that uh, it's something other than that. And, uh, that there is a, you know, much more profound explanation for some of these things. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, I couldn't tell you for sure. It's interesting. There's, there's, I suppose you come from a community of people who, who are generally just very logical, you know, you look for an explicable, uh, logical answer rather than right. the supernatural one. So, and I know yeah. again, from talking to guys still in, these sightings are happening all the time now. Um, they, and, there's been, and I've heard that as well, Steve. Yeah. You're right, I, and I think you're you're right about the one thing. I think the technology now with AESA because it's basically magic. Um, you know, I, everyone, someone was trying to explain to me how it works. I'm like, I, I'm out, done. <laughs> it just works. That's fine. Um, I think that may have something to do with it because now the technology that we have is so profound it doesn't. It, if it's in the air, it's going to see it, mm. and that would certainly makes sense that some of these things that maybe we weren't seeing before are now becoming known. Yeah, and and when when they talk about uh, surface vessels being swarmed by these things, they're often Aegis class cruisers. You know, they've got Acer radars. They, right. That's how they yep. know they're there because it's happening at night time. Yeah, and it's queuing their IR systems so they can they can actually sort of pick them up and see them. So, um, another question I wanted to ask you just for your your opinion on, which is um, more down to earth. Um, uh, no pun intended, but yeah. is 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 the sort of automatic carrier landing capability that the Navy's had now for I don't know how many years. And again, I I just have to put my hands up and say I'm not I'm not yeah. that well versed on it. But you know, th- there was a I read recently that it's so accurate that they actually have to build in a, a sort of an inaccuracy, let's say, because the deck um, where the hook hits is beginning to sort of get worn out yeah get worn out so then they have to build in some tolerance for you know moving moving the the, they move the the target wires yeah so so, i mean there's an old school guy then who started in the f14a um with no real sort of aids i guess you had automatic some kind of automatic carrier landing system but probably nothing that sophisticated nothing i would use (laughs) nothing you would use okay yeah not f14a how do you feel about that is there is there a natural tendency to to re- revolt against such technological advances or do you embrace it i i guess i'm a bit old school on it steve to be candid um because i do think that one of the things that i've i wanted to be a carrier aviator because i wanted to, I, I the idea i saw the right stuff when i was in high school 
I saw Alan Shepard flying an A4 off a boat. And I thought that seemed like the coolest thing in the world. So that was my goal. And I was fortunate enough to be able to achieve it. I do think that carrier aviators of past will tell you that that was, you know, something to be proud of. And it, it's, it's difficult. It's certainly night carrier landings. Um, it takes hundreds of hours, hundreds of landings at night before you get even marginally comfortable and you never get comfortable. Uh, so, you know, the day becomes pretty routine, but the night, even as a senior guy with over 700 traps, I can tell you that the night never becomes routine. Uh, that said, the capabilities that we have now, the, the, the system, they call it magic carpet. And because it effectively is a magic carpet and, you know, people bitched about the F-14D because it had a mode two Delta. So it had a flight director. You basically put the velocity vector inside this box and it, it actually took into account the, the pitch of the aircraft carrier, the roll. And you know, so it was like a video game and, you know, you couple that with uh, the direct lift compensator DLC on the F-14, and it actually became a, a very, it went from being the A, the, the turkey, where it was an awkward bird that shouldn't be flying. The D was a landing machine. It was actually a very capable, um, certainly in senior hands. But the, the Hornet has always been a good lander. Uh, the Super Hornet is a little trickier than the Hornet, but it has great systems. And now with the addition of this magic carpet, they are, uh, as you said, it is a perishable skill. So I will tell you that the thing that concerns me is that someday there's going to be a kid that's going to come back to the carrier. His, his magic carpet isn't going to work. And he's going to actually have to fly the old school, no kidding, mode one to touchdown or mode three down to touchdown. And um you know, the, the question is, is, is he going to be able to do it? Um, I, I think that it, it's a fine line between training and maintaining that capability and then just saying, okay, if the guy can't land, if he can't do magic carpet, there's even talk about it. If magic carpet's down that nobody lands on the ship. Oh, really? Yeah. They're, they're, they're taught. It's like, okay, it's, it's such an emergency. It'd be like, okay, if you lost an engine and you have a divert within in sight, in the old school days, like, hey, bring them aboard. We're going to fix it here. Uh, as we started to do more ORM and other safety-related programs, we're like, hey, there's no sense in bringing back the ship. Just send them over to Bahrain or somewhere uh, out there, uh, which is great if you've got to divert. But we routinely fly what's called blue water, which means you're not. there's nowhere to land. You're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You can land in the water. That's your option. Um, so... I think you still need to be able to train to that capability. I still think that you need to practice enough, whatever that requires to make sure a kid can safely land the plane without all the auto systems at night. And um, I do know that uh, like we used to grade our landings. It was the, I don't know if you've heard of the greenie board or saw it, but mm. there was a, there was literally a board with all the pilots names and um, your, your each landing is graded on a four point scale. So uh, the, the two primary grades are a fair and an okay. An okay is an A, a 4-0 landing, and a fair is a, is a B, is a 3-0 landing. Um, and then you've got a no grade, which is a stitch, which is a 2-0 landing. So, um, and the good guy, and they're all color-coded. And if you got an A, you know, if you had a, a okay landing, 
So the best you can do is okay. You got an okay landing. You got a you got a little green tile next to your name. So it's called the greenie board. Well, they've taken the greenie boards down uh, out of the ready rooms. So on the carrier, guys would go in. We'd go brief with other squadrons. The first thing every driver does is you look at the greenie board to see who's crushing it. And of course, there's you know bragging rights to get involved with that. But uh, now the boards are gone because everything's green because everyone's landing on on the magic carpet. And so it's like, okay, okay, okay. Everyone's getting green. It's like, there's no skill required anymore to land on the ship or at least not as much because uh, as a matter of fact, they've said in order to compete for the top hook. So these grades, you can't land with, to have your grade count, you can't land with the magic carpet on. Wow. So, yeah. Um, I guess long, long winded, reply to a quick answer but i i think that you should you need to be able to maintain that capability because i think that's the essence of carrier aviation to be able to hand fly a plane to the deck in bad weather at night on a pitching deck and that, you know that's i think the core of what separates carrier aviators from everybody else and if we get rid of that then it's just you know your drone driver sitting in the plane i mean there's no difference do you think um i mean i'm, I'm sort of you know, maybe sort of taking the the topic a bit too far, but do you think that actually somebody flying an F-35 is that much different from that anyway? I mean, you're going to base your game plan on technology that you think work, and you already mentioned you were more at threat in 2003 from a Patriot battery than you were from an Iraqi sand sand battery. Uh, so, So... is there just generally an over-reliance on technology? And where do, you, where do you draw the line? Because presumably you do have to be reliant on technology. So, um, okay, don't use magic carpet because all it means is you're just, you know, you're sitting in a drone. But then if you're an F-35 guy and it's looking out and sucking up, you know, the big picture of the, you know, the world around you and it's just saying, well, here are all the bad guys and these are the guys you should shoot first and all you've got to do is consent. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, I don't know. I don't know. I'm no, not even I, asking a question. I'm just. No, see, no you're, you're, you've made great points. And, and um, I, I think my limitation, my, my concern with technology, I'm going to limit it to landing on a carrier uh, because I think that's, again, a core skill uh, where you start to get into tactics. Um, I think I'm a fan of technology because as you know, technology is changing. I, I still think people need to learn how to do BFM, basic fighter maneuvers. I think that's a core skill. I think it teaches you a lot about basic uh, aerodynamics. It teaches you your own personal limitations on on what it's like to fight under G and or high stress. Um, you learn a lot in that situation. But is anyone ever really going to get into a dogfight again? You know, that, that's a discussion. I mean, we, we went through a generation 30 years ago where they wouldn't put guns on the planes. So you know, we, we had to fight to get guns back on the F-14. And um, I guess I, I, I love the helmet mounted sight. I love aim nine X, but you know, as you know, there's, there's over the shoulder weapon capability now in a lot of planes. So you work your ass off to get into a, a, a you know, a gun solution. And you get shot by a missile by some guy that you just crushed in an ACM fight, but he's got a great system, looks over his shoulder and it shoots you in the face. Um, so it has leveled the playing field in some regards uh, as far as the, the true aviation airmanship part of it. But um, again, there's a lot of things going on in these, these first gen, you know, these fifth gen fighters. I mean, it's even flying the super Hornet for the year that I did with the helmet mounted sight, 
I mean, that's a lot of information, especially for a guy that's used to having a reel. So now I'm running a radar. I'm now I've, you know, the, all the shit that I made fun of, J Sal, Parm, all that crap. And now I can carry it. So now I have to know how to shoot it. It's like, God, I can't believe I'm carrying this crap. Um, and, you know, on top of that, I still got to learn how to fight and fly and use radar and all the other things. So there's, there are a lot of requirements we're asking of our, our new fighter pilots that, weren't an issue way back when, uh, you know, if you're flying an F8, guess what you're worried about? ACM had a gun, you know, it's like you had some very limited capabilities there landing the thing on the boat too. Um, but that's what you practice and that's what you got good at. Now we're asking super Hornet guys. We're asking, you know, joint strike fighter guys to here are the 75 weapons that you can carry on these things. Here's the 55 different ways you can manipulate the displays to have them work for you. Uh, on top of your helmet mounted sight and everything else. So um, I don't know where I, I'm a fan of the technology, but at some point we are saturating these guys and I, I will fall back to my earlier answer. That's a big reason I like two seats because so many of these capabilities, it, it'd be so nice to have somebody help you work through it all. I mean, I know there's hardcore single seat guys out there, um, but I can tell you having flown single seat and two seats, um, I, if you're flying with the right guy, two seat, two people can be three or four. Um, now conversely, if you're flying with the wrong guy, two people can be one and a half pretty quickly or, or less, yeah. you know, I've, I've flown with those guys too, where it's just like all your situational awareness is getting sucked into the trunk. It's like, thanks a lot, dude. Um, and that's where I get the single seat argument. But, uh, you know, I, as I said, when I'm flying by myself, I'm always flying with somebody good. Uh, but that said, I would rather fly with another guy that's really good than fly by myself. Yeah. If that makes sense. And, and, and I think that with the technology that we have out there today, I think it becomes even more important to remember that crew concept because there is just a ton of information that I'm not sure one guy can process all of it. Especially you start throwing the link picture in there too. I mean, all the sensors that we have, it's like, Christ. Yeah, I, th I think that's what the F thirty five is supposed to do particularly well, isn't it? Is to actually you know, make sense of all of that and visualize it. So yeah, you know, it's, it's and it color codes it and co yeah, and color codes. Yeah, it. yeah. So, it's idiot proof, but it, you know, it, again, it is an idiot proof, and you're still operating at, at, at you know six hundred miles an hour. So yeah. um, there's always going to be that aspect to it. But I, I think there are, are there are skills that are core to being a good aviator. Those are the ones we need to protect. Uh, outside of that, I'm all about leveraging technology for the betterment. I mean, you know, I, I fly for FedEx now. I I love all the auto things that we have in our planes. And uh, it, it certainly makes our lives easier. Now, I'm not employing a weapon system by any sense, but um, as you're, you know, I, 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 like guys, we don't fly tacking approaches anymore. I mean, we still have them in our approach plates. It's like, but attacking, and you ask any aviator now outside of a general aviation guy in a Cessna, you ask anybody who's been flying for 20 years, Hey, can you fly attacking? I'm like, if you held a gun to my head, I could probably figure it out. But I, it's not like I'm arcing or anything. It's like, we all just go to the final approach course and you land. It's, it, yeah. it, these are things that we don't do anymore. I mean, when I started flying, we're doing, when I first started flying, we're doing NDBs, yeah. you know, all this, it's like, okay, we don't do it anymore. Um, I still don't know how guys in the fifties found the carrier. It's like they would plot that shit. I'm like, God, I'd be lost at sea. Um, so 
I guess it, it's the age old question, you know, how far you let the technology go yeah. before you try to rein it in. And I, I, again, I, I think that there are there's cases where I just let it continue to build. I, I think I'm right in saying that the F-35 has a manual. Um, it has a teeny tiny HUD. I don't know if you've seen that down on the front on the left hand side. There's a tiny little bit of glass or perspex. And I like to think that's just a gun aiming reticle. So that yeah. when, when everything goes to shit, then the, the I have, you, you know, Steve, I've got F 35. Like one of my best friends is uh, the commanding, one of the first commanding officers of our, our FRS down in, uh, where is it? It's down in Eglin. It was a joint, it was a joint Navy and uh, Air Force squadron um, down in Florida. And uh, yeah, he, he got a lot of uh, JSF time. But yeah, he, there were things he told me about it. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. But he liked it. I mean, and he was a Hornet baby. He, he flew Hornets and Super Hornets his whole career. And he thought he, he was a big fan of the Joint Strike Fighter. Well, Puck, we're, we're a couple of hours in and uh, it would be rude of me to take any more time from you. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you very much for um, giving us the story behind how the Tomcat went away and what it was like to be at the helm when that happened. And, and uh, for your other insights as well. It's been really nice talking to you and um, I appreciate your time very much. Steve, I've enjoyed it. It's been a lot of fun. I, I love going down memory road every now and then. Haven't done it very often, so having a chance to think about some of these things has been nice and uh, really enjoyed our discussion. Thanks for tuning in to 10% True. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to subscribe, and if you're on YouTube, hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks, and take care.